guys, it's taken a long time, eight years, but we made it. It's episode 400 of the Android Central Podcast. My name is Daniel Bader, and after yesterday's awesome live hangouts on air with the entire AC crew, we are back in the traditional format. You are listening to part one of a very special episode that we have put together for you. I'm joined in this part by Andrew Martinick. How are you? Doing just fine. That's great. Mm-hmm. Jerry Hildenbrand. Hey, hey, Welcome hey. Back. Alex Doby. So good to have you. Very good well. Awesome. Yeah, you've come off a very exciting week, and we're excited to hear what you have to share about the new Huawei stuff. Uh, and then after this segment, which will be a little bit shorter than normal, stick around because we have something very, very cool for you featuring Ara Wagner, our uh, amazing reporter, uh, theme gadget extraordinaire. She talks to Des from the T-Mobile um, PR marketing team. They go over a whole bunch of stuff on the history of Android, T-Mobile was there from the beginning, and you want to stick around for this. It's a really, really cool segment. Uh, But first, we'll start with Pixel. We'll start with Google, Andrew, Jerry, uh, Alex. You know, we recorded our last official episode right before the event in New York City. We talked about the Pixel 3 and 3XL, which we had in-house. Then we went to the event, Andrew, and we Mm -hmm. discovered that there were more pieces of hardware to show. The Pixel Slate, which is coming in mid-November, and the Google Home Hub, which was kind of a surprise, not because we didn't know it was coming, but because of and what it Google turned Pixel out to be. And the Google Pixel Ultra, which is the true... No, I'm sorry. Oh, jeez, <laughs> no, come on. <laughs> that's coming April 1st, as we know, Alex. Right. Mark, mark that in my calendar. Um, so, Andrew, get us started on this, because you know, you've now reviewed the Pixel 3 and 3XL, mm-hmm. and you've been using it for a few weeks. Um and, you know, I'm, I'm sure that you've learned a few things along the way. Yeah, I, I obviously compared to whatever this was a week and a half ago or who knows, five years ago when we did our last episode, it feels like it's been forever. Uh, we really had to learn how the how the cameras had actually been improved, how the screens played out in the real world you know we knew that they were going to be good we just didn't know how good and uh what things like you know battery life were like etc um i think on the screen front uh the the screens are not quite like samsung note 9 good they're pretty darn close and i think the one shortcoming there is the brightness and you guys could probably back me up there it just doesn't doesn't quite get up to the same level of even the lg v40 actually the lg v40 is something like 150 nits brighter or something like that which is pretty uh it's a pretty big difference but uh other than that the screens are absolutely as good as Google said they would be in as good as DisplayMate says that they are in terms of accuracy, colors, all that kind of stuff. Um, the display notch just isn't really a problem. We can get over it. Uh, I think the battery life for me has not... I mean, it's been what I expected given the Pixel 2 and 2 XL, but it's not great. I, I know that, Daniel, you've been using the smaller Pixel 3 more. I've been, been using the XL more, and it's 
It's fine. It, it's a full day phone. It's, uh, as you would expect, not as good as the Note 9, but it's kind of right there with the GS9 Plus. Uh, what have you found that the smaller Pixel 3 is like for you, Daniel? Yeah, I'm I'm actually writing something about this right now. I think, so, you know, I'm of the opinion that with wireless charging and with ubiquitous charging options, most people don't need to worry about being you know, having these road warrior like battery, battery uptimes, right? I don't need right. my phone to last a day and a half of continuous use because 10 hours of screen on time. Guaranteed. Yeah, there's very, there's very few days in the year that I truly need a phone to last that long without having access to some charging solution. And with you guys wa- speak for yourselves. I'm going to be getting my phone with a 5,000 milliamp hour battery soon. We'll talk about that a little <laughs> bit later. Yeah, and the size of uh, you'll have to have a separate backpack just to carry it around. Yeah, I'm going to have something to eat sushi on whenever I, whenever <laughs> I come across sushi in the wild. So I think the Pixel Three does a fine job uh, staying, you know, up all day. It's it's. I haven't had an issue with it. I haven't had to charge it before bed even once. Uh, you know, it gets down to single digits by you know, 1130 midnight, but yeah, that it gets doesn't a little mean, hairy, but that's okay. You know, I, I have wireless chargers all over my house. I have battery packs. If I need to go somewhere else, like I, I really don't think it's a big deal. Um, and all the benefits of that smaller phone are laid out in front of you, right? The, I think it's the perfect size. I love the screen. I love the performance, the camera. It's all basically the same phone in a slightly smaller form factor. Yeah, I, I do appreciate that. The The size really is just right, especially if you're going to be somebody that uses a something, uh, a case on it that's thicker than your standard, like ultra thin, you know, super doesn't give you any protection kind of case. Uh, you could still fit the thing in your pocket, no problem. You can use it with one hand. That's kind of been my thing with the XL is I love this um textile fabric case whatever google calls it um carpet case yeah not yeah the carpet case in the traditional sense i i love the case but it doesn't it makes the two the 3xl too big and now it, it like steps over into the realm of being too big at that point so i just wish that the smaller pixel 3 just it it didn't feel like a compromise. Uh, we kind of held out hope that maybe the efficiency had been increased enough and that little bump in battery would just like push it over. It's just not enough for me, even though I love how, how small it is and the fact that the camera and the screen and everything else is just as good. So I kind of back up most of what you guys have said on battery life. I disagree on what you're saying on the small one, Andrew. It's been pretty much fine for me. It's been... I don't know. There's not been a great big gulf for me having used both of them over the past week in in longevity between the two. Maybe that's just down to the way we we use phones totally. individually. Yeah. Um, something else I want to bring up is we've I think most of us been using Galaxy Note nines for at least a, a reasonable amount of time over the past few months, and I think that phone does spoil you in terms of battery life. That is a phone that you just forget about having to worry about charging uh, through the day because the battery size is... Yeah, I never to have to worry it, about it. I, I use a Key 2. I, I let people with a Note 9 use it, my Key 2 as a charger. So, okay. <laughs> well, well, yeah, I mean, Jerry, you're in the same yeah. situation with that phone, right? Uh, we're, we're all a little bit yeah. f- uh, spoiled recently with the phones that we've been using that have had a truly excellent battery life. So maybe just the step down from that, even though they're still pretty good, is it just seems like a greater chasm than otherwise it might. 
that's fair. I mean, Jerry, like you, you're of the you're a similar user to me in the sense that you know you use your phone for phone things, right? right. You're not necessarily playing tons of games. You're not doing right photo video editing. You're not you know you're using it to just to stay it's in to touch talk with people. To my people, yeah. That that's that's what I do with it, basically. Right. So, and Jerry, you didn't you just get a Pixel? Three, yeah, just, yeah. Uh, mine, mine came uh, when we were recording the live show. It arrived just minutes before we started. So, what's your impression so far? Uh, I <laughs> with the screen off, it's it's a Galaxy S eight plus, like or S eight, well, whichever one I have. I forget which one I have. It really reminds me of the Galaxy S eight, the size, yeah, the shape, that uh, gloss the way sides. the screen is laid out. Yep. Uh. I don't care for the narrow narrowness. I just don't. That that that's not for me. But I can't say it's a bad phone. Uh, you know, quick two day impression. I I think they did pretty much what I expected they would do. Make everything just a little bit better and one standout feature. And this year, that's the camera, which is fun to play with. So yeah, I mean, you you obviously have a bit more background on the technical side of things when you look at the results of the Pixel 3 camera. Can you see the way that Google is manipulating the um the the, the pixels using its various, you know, methods out, you know, HDR plus is no longer just applying, you know, three exposures to a photo and, and going from there. You know, Alex has talked so much about how this year, even more than ever, Google is using HDR plus as a blanket statement, a blanket um, feature for so many different things. I forget who mentioned it on the other podcast, but it's been a long time since HDR plus was about any, had anything yeah. to do with HDR on the traditional sense. I, I really notice it with their zoom feature. Uh, I haven't been able to take a, a picture in the dark that turned out as expected yet, but I haven't really tried, but I have been playing with the zoom feature and even, uh, I toss the tennis ball so my dog can bounce around and zoom in while he's running. And I can get a picture more than good enough to put on Twitter or Facebook. You know, it, it's, it's good. It's, it's not great. Uh, if, if you take a picture of something sitting still, I've gotten some great pictures zoomed in at, you know, full digital zoom. You can see that, that that's instant to see. I, I still don't quite get what they're doing. I think there's a little bit more than the way they explained it, which of course they're, they're not, it's not like they're keeping secrets. They just, they're not going to bore us with, you know, all the, the tiny little details because very few of us want to know them, but that, that, that's amazing what they're doing with the digital zoom. And the way to tell how good that is, is by, uh, take, take your regular full size zoomed out image then zoom in one or two notches on the little thing, uh, take a picture there, then take a screenshot of both at the same zoom level. And you'll be able to see the extra detail in most situations that that gives you, especially the fine detail and the color that it actually pulls out through being able to do that magic with the the OIS where it actually moves the lens around and captures um, more data over time. If you snap a zoomed picture and then really quick tap the thing down in the corner for the preview, you can see it jump up and it's blurry as expected and you can watch it snap into place 
Yeah, there's some really there's an interesting um, white paper that Google produced on how they achieve this effect using the shake uh, in your hands and and the way that they um, accrue that data and turn it into um, you know into actionable results. Uh, Andrew, you wrote a piece on the site this morning about how this is you know the Google Pixel line you know three years in is no longer. It it has very little to do with the Nexus line that Google yeah. was propagating five years ago. The Nexus th- five um, famously launched at three hundred and forty nine dollars, um, and so did the Nexus four. But the Nexus five is five years old now, and we were talking about it yesterday. Uh, the you know the Pixel has to differentiate itself, and it has to do so in the high end. It has to do so at the seven ninety nine price point now, which is considerably higher than even last year's 649 entry point. How do you think they're doing in 2018 with all of this competition? And why do you think that the Pixel 3 XL, as is now you know canonical on Android Central, is the phone of the year, or at least the best phone you can buy right now? Yeah, I, I think that some people are just for some reason holding on to this idea that Google would just be better off continuing to make a, a cheap phone or, you know, an inexpensive phone, something in the mid range, something uh, even underneath what like the OnePlus 6 or we expect the 6T to be. It, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense from Google's perspective. If you look at what their goals have been, we're three generations into the into the Pixel now. You watch that. Um, you watch Rick Osterloh go up there for the Pixel 3 launch and you see the kind of people they're marketing to, the kind of features that they're they're showing off are not based on specs. They're not based on the speeds and feeds. Uh, I don't believe they mentioned battery life a single time. I don't think that they mentioned, they definitely didn't mention battery size. They didn't say the word Android a single time. It's not about... That means Android is dead, by the way. (laughs) Android is definitely dead because Google didn't mention it. It it doesn't, the big thing is that it doesn't have anything to do with Google wanting to just sell a ton of phones. Like Google already, you know, quote unquote sells a bunch of phones and that Android dominates every single market price segment underneath $500 because, you know, it's the only thing that's available for the most part. And Google services are on every single one of those phones. Google doesn't need to wade into that party with, the Moto G6 and the Nokia 6 and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, all the way through the lineup of all these good, you know, cheap, inexpensive Android phones. They're trying to market to the people that are going to be repeat customers for expensive phones and have a really good feeling about Google as a company and look at all these cool things that Google can do with its cameras and all the software, your unlimited Google Photos backups, your um, deep integration with Google Assistant, et cetera, et cetera. These are the things that only happen on a higher end phone. They don't want to have something that's just like critically uh, flawed or filled with trade-offs because they had to hit a $349 price point. So here's, I, I agree with most of what you just said there. Um, remember, uh, I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right. Google wants uh, to sell expensive phones. I also think Google wants to sell a lot of phones, but they're, they're Google and they can be kind of slow and a bit more considered in how they do that. I remember we did have rumors a while back that Google was going to be launching a, you know, quote unquote, mid-range pixel, something using a Snapdragon 710 or something like that, which is still a, a relatively powerful chip. 
I think the the case for Google doing that is is probably pretty strong, and it maybe doesn't have much to do with the U.S. or with with you know many developed markets. But if you take India, India is a very price conscious market. This kind of phone would potentially at the, around kind of OnePlus pricing do pretty well there. And Google, with its kind of unique situation with the Pixel Visual Core, would be in a a unique position to be able to put the 710 in there, have pretty much all the features that you need in that outside of a super high-end ISP. But hey, wait a minute, if you have the Pixel Visual Core in there as well, maybe you don't need that ISP, and maybe you can do something at that price point that no one else can. Um, And, you know, regardless of what happens in the West, that could be a pretty interesting device uh, pairing the Visual Core with uh, a lesser SoC. Uh, and maybe steamrolling a couple of the brands in uh, in some of these developing markets. Well, I mean, I I, I look at something like the iPhone XR uh, or XR, whatever it's called, and why Apple felt the need to launch a, a phone at seven hundred and fifty dollars, right? Um, you know, it's not by any means an inexpensive product, but it's still two hundred and fifty dollars cheaper than its cheapest I, uh, flagship iPhone. Um, and I agree with you, Alex, that I think that there is still some. Um, some elasticity in Android flagship pricing. I mean, you see the the the, the OnePlus six T likely to, to start at five hundred and fifty dollars if we go by the twenty to thirty dollar increments of previous generations. That's a very inexpensive flagship price for Android, and you get there are so few compromises in a OnePlus phone these days that it's it's really hard for companies like Samsung to justify charging $1,000 outright. And as we're often called out on uh, in the comments, so few Americans and people in, in North America in general buy their phones that way. They buy them using, um, using these, lease, these leasing services where they pay $40 a month over 18, or two, 18 months or two years, and they never see that final you know, MSRP. So... You know, I agree with you that these prices depend on the market that they're in. And I guess the Pixel 3, you know, mini or whatever you would want to call it could probably sell quite well. But my question comes back to how many phones does Google actually want to sell? As many as they can make without losing money. That's that's part of the point in in this editorial I wrote as well, is that if they all they cared about was volume, like the traditional Google model, get more people using the thing and that's how you'll make money. Like that's okay. That's that's not that's not the idea behind the hardware effort. The hardware effort has to be driven at they can't just pile money into it. This is not a Google X project. Uh, this is an actual business division, and they have a CFO that's not interested in losing money now. They can't just pile money into things. They, <laughs> and so they can't just take the Pixel 3 and 3XL and drop $200 off of them. It's just not going to happen. It, it would be a completely different phone from what we have now. And I think that that's what some of the nuance is lost on people when they say, oh, well, what if they, why don't they just sell it for, uh, you know, the 3XL for $599? It's like, well, that that doesn't they work. Want to make some money, yeah, yeah that's they, not how business works. Exactly. Like, it's going to be a different phone. If they were to sell a three hundred fifty dollars phone today, it would look like a Moto G six plus, not like a Pixel three mm. XL. I think we've heard from pretty much everyone that made an Nexus back in the day that none of those devices, zero, made any money of any significant consequence, and, and many people actually lost money on them. 
the the Nexus the the only reason the Nexus plan existed was to get two million apps in Google Play. Period. Uh, they needed something to put in the hands of developers cheap. That's why everybody had a fit when the Nexus Six arrived, and it was what four hundred dollars instead of two ninety nine. But it wasn't supposed to be. I mean, that wasn't the that wasn't the phone that Google was supposed to make the Nexus Six, right? <laughs> no, so it was no. kind of an accident. Yeah, I I know things change, but when the, the Pixel program originally was rumored, uh, a, a a fellow that no longer works at Google, but I'm still not going to name him out. They wanted people to be able to have a a top of the line phone the way that Google thought it should be. Not that they were unhappy with what the Samsungs and LGs of the world were doing, but Samsung's vision and LG's vision and everybody else was very different than than Google's. Uh, and, and the relationship between those companies back then was totally different to yeah. the, the more sort of traditional ODM relationship that you have between Google and HTC, Google and, Google and LG, and now Google and Foxconn, right? Right. They, uh, those companies back then were creating phones that would compete directly with their own products. I, 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 he, I, he actually said, you know, that in meetings, why does everybody here use an iPhone? Well, because it's, it's built nice, it's, it's built well, it's simple. It does the things we like to do. We like to, you know, social network or use maps or whatever. And and anybody that's been to Google's campus knows that the iPhone is very popular there. People yeah. that work for Google tend to want that type of design and that, that type of, you know, user experience. Google didn't want to have the iPhone be the only phone that offered that experience. So they tried to make their own. And I think that my my final part of the this whole thought system here is that Google doesn't have to be it like it doesn't have to follow Apple's system or Samsung's system or anything like that because Google has this unique position of they make the flagship high end phone that they want to make that best represents their brand. It right. has the Google G on the back, and like that's that's what it's all about. It's the Google experience or you know the the brand message because they can also they can have their cake and eat it too because they also are on every single android phone when samsung sells a phone google gets that information too google is a a software company we we you know they're branching into hardware but google's always been a software company they have what 80 plus percent of the entire world market they don't care I mean, let's let's actually. Um, I want to. I just want to be cognizant of of Andrew's time here because I really want to get into the other hardware products that were announced at the Pixel event, uh, notably the Pixel Slate, which is a sort of follow up slash successor to the Chrome uh, the Pixel Book from last year and the Home Hub. Um, but I, I do want to kind of finish this off um, with Andrew's thoughts. You know. Do you think the XL, the 3XL, is going to be the better seller this year despite that notch? I know you don't care personally, but there's so much vehemence against this in the core community. Can the Pixel yeah. brand break through into the mainstream and actually, you know, most people don't care where where most people don't care about such a thing as a notch or even know what a notch is? Or is it not quite there yet given 
the fact that it's only sold through one carrier in the U.S. Yeah, I mean that that final part is the important point that we're talking about. You know, a different relative scale here. It, they're just the I don't know how much more the three and three XL combined are going to outsell the two and two XL and you know the first generations, but within the two of them, I still think that the three XL is the going to be the preferred option for your kind of average person. Big phones sell. This is just how it is. We've seen uh, Samsung for the last three generations, the larger, the plus model, and even the S seven edge has outsold the small one by a wide margin. Uh, Apple's uh, iPhones keep getting larger because like you look at the 10 R it's an even larger device than the 10 S because large phones sell and those general kind of general public people that want the larger screen because they well, they like the larger uh, screen for looking at it, viewing all of this stuff, but they also just like the larger battery that comes with it. Those are the people that do not give a damn about the notch. The people that care about the notch are the people that we converse with on a regular basis and their voices are heard. It's just such a smaller amount. And those are the people that were maybe going to be considering the smaller Pixel 3 anyway, because that's kind of the 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 purest one you're like oh well i love small phones well most people do not want the small phone and just based on the size and the fact that there's no longer this huge price discrepancy between the two it's just a hundred dollars it's so much easier for people to see that 7.99 advertised price and bump up to a hundred dollars and get this much larger display well you know i agree that there is kind of a uh, the gulf between them this year is going to be that much smaller in terms of price and more people probably will be tempted to go for the bigger phone just because it's not such a huge yeah. jump to do so financially. But Jerry, uh, I, and I think this is what you're going to get at before I kind of j- butt it in. Don't I remember we heard in the past year or so that actually the Pixel 2 was the better selling of the two last year? Yes, the small one. Uh, that's not what I heard. That's that's what I was told. And, and you know, I know somebody else that was told the same thing. But then again, maybe one of us got information from Verizon and the other got information from the Google store. That kind of throws a wrench in it because Verizon won't differentiate which one they sold. They just call it the Pixel. And Verizon also did lot. It's tough to tell at the end. Verizon did lots of buy one, get one, or yeah. they were giving, yeah. well, they were basically giving Pixel 2s away for like $300. Yeah. You know, but. you can still... And this, this is, I, I can't get an answer if this is going to be a real thing forever or if this is just until they're gone. You can buy a Pixel 2, Pixel 2 XL, brand new, full 24-month warranty, 0% financing. But, I mean, if if you want a big phone and don't want to spend $1,000, uh, $699 gets you a Pixel 2 XL. But then For you're going to look at that yeah, horrible I, screen. I agree with that. So... All right, let's let's um let's move on and talk about the Pixel Slate. So, uh Andrew, this is a really interesting product. It's a product that um probably has the widest price variation of anything Google's yeah. ever announced. You know, it starts at 599 for a version that basically runs a Celeron processor going all the way up to what is it? 6 $1700 for one that runs an i7. An i7 um, with 16 gigs of RAM? Yeah, so it really does start at like a, not a cheap Android tablet, but a fairly inexpensive... A Google product. Lat- a, a Chromebook, you know, a, a decently specced Chromebook all the way up to like a Surface 
pro competitor. Um, yeah. And I, I'm, I'm guessing that's exactly the product that Google's going after with this. Talk a little bit about the hardware, uh, the included keyboard, and and sort of the the decision around moving away from a laptop form factor. Yeah, I, I of course, want to hear Jerry's opinions on this, having used the Pixelbook a lot more than me. But from my perspective, you you hit it right on the head. They, they're going after the iPad Pro 12.9 and the Surface Pro line. This is That's what they think this is. And when you look at the spec uh, configurations, like you can just throw out the 599 version, like don't buy the one with the Celeron and four gigs of RAM. You're going to hate yourself. Don't don't do it. But when you look at the next levels up, it really falls closely in line with the Surface Pro. The problem there for them is they're charging an extra $200 for the keyboard, which is much more than you pay for the iPad Pro keyboard or the Surface Pro keyboard. And that's what makes this device so weird to me. It Well, it's not that weird when you remember that this is Google and so they overcharge or not overcharge. They charge a lot for their hardware. They make nice things and charge a lot for them. Um, the device to me doesn't make any sense without a keyboard. That's my biggest thing. That's the problem with the $200 price on the keyboard is that the, the thing doesn't make sense without it. Uh, they Because they have this new interface for Chrome OS, this refresh tablet interface for Chrome OS, but it just doesn't it, it it doesn't replace it doesn't even do as well as Samsung does with the with Tab S3 Tab S4. Uh it's not that good. We we knew this product was coming. I mean, Google wasn't even they didn't even deny it when when people would question them. I was a little disappointed that they threw it in as an also ran at the Pixel phone yeah. event. I, I you know, I would have loved to have seen you know, as they did in the past, give it a little bit more time. I, I think Andrew, they, you're I, right. They they could have used a lot more explanation because yeah. I'm I'm still coming at this from like I used a thing. Of course, I spent almost an hour with it trying to kind of understand how it would work as a tablet and all that. And the amount of time they spent explaining it was about as little amount of time as it seemed like they worked on the interface. Like well, it, this, and, this is yeah, basically I, like a new, when you remove the keyboard, it just gives you the app drawer look. Everything else is the same. They have a new, uh, the notification center is like one click instead of two. It's like, it's not a replacement for a ta- for a tab proper tablet interface. That's, that's, I mean, you, you can see this yourself, get any Chromebook that'll fold over and just put the last dev version of Chrome on it. Uh, I more so the, uh, you know, I get the interface. I, I, I have some problems with it too. Trust me. I just, who is this thing for? And yeah. I feel, I, I get this what you're saying about the keyboard, but if you need the pixel slate with a keyboard, you just buy a pixel book instead. Yeah. And this, I mean, again, this interface and this hardware combination it is the, is Chrome OS ready for this to be sold on it at this price? And and if so, like you were saying, who is it? Who is the target audience? Uh, right. I, I I'm I'm going to come right out and say, don't buy the cheap one and don't buy the expensive one. The only one worth buying would be the i5 model, and it's two hundred dollars too expensive. So the the keyboard. This is the typical Google thing. Like 
The keyboard is really good. The hardware of the tablet is really good. And then you like they they kind of stumble a little bit in a couple areas, but like they did all the hard parts. Kind of the, I don't know if I was the only one that noticed this. The software and the way it looks and the way it acts and just the general jankiness and the poor scrolling and the fact that the Windows system is just a mess. It reminded me a lot of Honeycomb. It's like we've come full circle, except on Chrome OS now. I I have it, and and I can't say for sure. Supposedly, the ones that Andrew saw were running a a different build designed for the event that had a bunch of the stuff in the background killed off. And other satellite events might have seen just plain old dev Chrome. Yeah, Andrew and I were in the same room, and (laughs) um, I was testing the software quite extensively and it was it was fine i mean i didn't go into a lot of the third-party apps i didn't really test the android integration though it was there but alex was right i mean the window management is is not finished it's still in debt i mean we're we're still a couple of months this is this thing is going to launch probably with beta class software and then only get stable by December, January. So early adopters here beware. But I also, I, I find it really interesting. You know, the Pixel Book starts at $999, right? This is a, that's a $1,000 laptop. Um, and it's not a particularly um, powerful laptop for $1,000. It's running a, an i5, 8 gigs of RAM, 120 gigs of storage. Lo and behold, the Pixel Book with an i5, with eight, or, uh, the Pixel Slate with, an i5 with 8 gigs of RAM and 120 gigs of storage is $1,000. But as Andrew said, there's the $200 keyboard that you have to throw in there as well. So I, as great as this hardware is and as you know, admirable as they've, uh, as admirable as it, as it is that they've spent so much time making the keyboard so good. I mean, the keyboard is fantastic, yeah. but it's a $1,200 investment right off the bat. I really don't think anybody should be buying the M3 version because you're then spending $800 on a severely underpowered laptop. In that case, you should just go for the Surface Go. Um, Even though that's running a Pentium, I don't know how much more powerful the M3 is than the Pentium in the Surface Go. But yeah, I don't know. 64 gigs of storage in in an $800 Pixel slate? That just seems too expensive. And. To, to the software reasoning before, if your software is that bad, for God's sake, just put it behind glass. This isn't this isn't advanced stuff. If you're going to be giving it to journalists to create content on it to people to play with that are supposed to be getting a representation of what it will actually be like, don't weasel your way out by say, having people say, by the way, it's not final software. Put it behind glass. Don't, leave, don't let people play with it. Or better still, just don't announce it until you have software that looks like it's potentially worth spending money on, because right now that's not what we have on this thing. Uh, maybe it'll be different by the time it launches, yeah. but Don't. until then we just have, maybe we have an erroneous impression of it, but that's Google's fault, not anyone else's. I'm not going to get too concerned about the design of the software and how well it works on a tablet, because I'm, I'm, I've seen Chrome go from dev to stable, and, and in, in a month it's they're two completely different animals it's like oh my god this is nothing like it looked you know a month ago so they they can they work on it on it hard so we have no idea what it's going to look like when it launches uh, hopefully better and and hopefully for companies like acer who already has released a tablet 
and has it for sale with that mess of a software and messy window manager on it. And HP, who uh, I call their the the X2, which is in limbo. I'm, I'm not even sure if it's going to be made anymore. That was, I think that's the best value in Chromebook you could buy today. And if you detach it and use it as a tablet, it's got some really poorly designed software on it. Yeah, this is almost my kind of my issue with Chrome OS in general, just because we're in this transition period with Google where they're trying to bring out a lot of this tablet stuff and the Android app support kind of on the fly and, you know, building the ship while you're sailing or building the plane while you're flying, whatever. You don't have this like consistent, like this long wait and then a big software release. They're just like updating it constantly. And you can just, well, like one day people are going to reboot their Chromebook or get the little notification and they're going to have a new interface available for when they flip their convertible back or some of these detachables, they remove it. And Google is not really doing a great job of messaging out what's going on there. And it's very subtle and they kind of have this, that, that issue of not being able to roll it out in the same way that they talk about, you know, now here's Oreo, here's pie. I don't know how you do it though. I mean, yeah. Uh, Microsoft is our historical example and, Everybody remembers Windows 8, and everybody remembers how you just wanted to smash it and throw it away because it was garbage. They had to go through the same types of pain. They just did it the other way, released something that was polished and what they wanted, and people still hated it. So I don't know how you you go about getting there, but uh, I, I do think they'll get there eventually. I It's just going to be a, a tough sell to sell a very expensive tablet running Chrome if it looks like a hot mess. Um, you know, that's a really interesting point, Jerry, because Microsoft actually acknowledged that and started naming these iterative updates, but the names themselves aren't that memorable, right? The April 27 or 2018 yeah. update, the October 2018 update. Yeah. Um, and if it wasn't... October, delete your files update. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, <laughs> don't, don't, don't. I lost so much. And if you know, I'm going to I'm going to shout out our, our friends at Windows Central here, because if it wasn't for sites like Windows Central, NeoWin, all of these sites really doing a great job digging into these updates before they're released and finding out what's good and what's not great about them. Uh, I don't think Microsoft would have a leg to stand on. No, so, we didn't have any idea what's changed. Exactly. So here's I mean, Google, I think, is acknowledging that because these updates happen so often and they're invisible to ever until they do change a bunch of interface uh designs and in 69 they did a you know a fairly large overhaul it was pretty nice um you know i i wonder if you know google just uh, you're right they don't have any other way to do it um and this yearly update thing with with Android doesn't really work because it takes them six months to a year to get any market share going anyway. I think maybe my complaint, like I, I definitely don't want to seem like I'm complaining that they're updating it regularly. That's like the Holy grail (laughs) that every week or every, you know, few weeks we get an entirely new version and they've upgraded and fixed a lot of things. I think that the problem is that when I'm talking about the tablet interface and the Android app support on Chrome OS in particular, feels like yes you get that update every three weeks or whatever but 
it feels like they've only spent a few weeks of work on it. it it's not like maybe you should hold off on some of those things until they actually make sense and they work and they look good because you're competing with the iPad Pro. Which is who they're competing with. Um, We, we say the Surface Pro because that's what we like because of our job. But if you look at the average consumer that's buying a tablet convertible device, they would be much better served with the iPad Pro than they would the Surface Pro. I no, I see. I, I disagree there because I would say a very small percentage of people buy the Surface Pro, or the um, iPad Pro keyboard, and use it as a like a laptop replacement. Um, whereas I think the vast majority, if not near a hundred percent, of people buying a Surface Pro buy the keyboard and use it as a laptop. Right. But would they if the interface for touch was as good as iOS is? Yeah, um, because I mean, but it, but it's not the app. I mean, in just, this case, it like I explained it in my hands on for the the slate, like the inner, they're more competing towards the surface just because the desktop part of it is the only experience that makes sense on the slate right now. But I think I mean, it like functionally and like the size and shape and all that is more like the iPad. Oh, I think Microsoft and Google both should be chasing the iPad as far as design and interface, because you're going to sell a whole lot more $600 iPads than you are $1,100 convertible devices with a keyboard. Although that said, we are just a couple weeks away from new iPads and who knows what may change if we get the biggest form factor change for iPads in, in a good few years. Yeah. And and the other part of it is that, um, you know, people bought iPads Google worked, I mean, Apple worked its way up to selling the iPad as a, as an enterprise, as a productivity product, right? They stumbled for years trying to, (laughs) trying to shoehorn that functionality into iOS, selling the iPad as something that you could do the actual work on. And it didn't, it failed. It took until 2016, essentially, for them to be able to justify selling it as a more expensive laptop replacement and you know that that was what six seven years after the ipad debuted so it's not like they've been able to tout this long-term support for (laughs) for the enterprise anyway and i I think they failed at it still i mean i there's no way in 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 on god's green earth that you would see me use an ipad pro for productivity over a, a surface pro it's just no iOS is not built for that type of productivity yet. Yeah, exactly. And we're we're on the twelfth version. So, um, all right, let's let's move on and talk about the last announcement Google made at its event, the Home Hub. Uh, it's so tiny. It's this <laughs> tiny little yeah. Nexus Seven mounted on a speaker, selling for one hundred and fifty dollars. What what do you guys think? I was really impressed, but I also have a Lenovo smart display in my kitchen, so I'm not sure I'm going to need one, but I don't know. What do you guys say? I like it as a, a device for potentially replacing my standard Google Home. I, I If I was going to get something like this, it would have to be a small screen because this is a kitchen device to me, and I... You know, we just don't have the counter space to put a 10 inch 
Echo Show or a 10-inch Lenovo Smart Display. I understand that there's the 8-inch Lenovo as well. It would have to be something of that size. And I just, I I was surprised by how small it was, but I would prefer that size. And I think Google knows that that's so much easier to get people to put this on a bedside table or keep one in the bathroom for the morning uh, or in the you know kitchen, whatever, all over your house because it's so versatile with its size. It, I, as soon as I saw it in, in a setting where I could tell its size by, you know, scaled in someone's hands or something, made me wish I had bought the 8-inch Lenovo's because I have one in the kitchen and I have one beside my bed and they're just a little bit too large. Yeah, it was a real revelation seeing this thing in the Google demo area and actually getting a feel for how small it is compared yeah. to the, the larger screens that we're, we're used to seeing on other kinds of devices. Uh, Jerry, there there's some talk that this is not actually running, quote, Android things itself, that it's a variant of like the cast software that's found yeah, in Chrome. I, what do you say to that? Well, I wish that somebody with a little bit more software experience had talked to Ron rather than an, an executive so we'd have a better idea of what it's actually running. It's not running CAST because CAST isn't an operating system. Uh, but, you know, that's that's no knock on ours or Ron. That's what they were told. I... I think it it's running matter? something. I mean, well, no, it, it doesn't. The as whole long point as is that it, it doesn't matter what it's running. As long as it can display the same interface as all of their partners, nobody should care. If it gives Google some sort of advantage that they held back from Lenovo or JBL, then yes, we should raise all kinds of hell. That's not but right, I, and it shouldn't I, be done. This was the same kind of conversation that we had when they first unveiled the smart displays at CES. And we were like, well, what's it what's it running? And they said, oh, it's running Android things. It's this new kind of thing where it, it doesn't you can't install apps on it. It's kind of fixed in place. And all that really matters is that it supports cast and it supports Google services at its core. And that's really right. all that matters in, in anyway. Uh, I think to Jerry's point, the thing that really matters is like, is this going to make the smart displays a second class citizen or a different, you know, on a different release cycle, which would be kind of frustrating. Yeah. Um, interesting that it doesn't have a camera. This is obviously Good. something Google said they made a big deal about that. It's, it's a more privacy forward product. And yet Google itself set up the platform for camera support with Google duo uh, it's also weird because the smart displays, especially the Lenovo ones, like they have a camera, they just have a physical shutter for it. And I think that that's all people really cared about. It's probably more of a cost savings than anything. And you still got a microphone in there if you're really worried about that kind of thing. Let's not. With it all said and done, I, I prefer Lenovo's way. I have the camera and mic and I can flip a switch and not only block them off, but shut the software off. Yeah. That way, if I want to make a call on it, which I probably never will, but if I wanted to, I could. Yeah, that's true. Uh, $150. This is a little bit more expensive than the Google Home if you know if the Google Home doesn't get a permanent price drop to $99. Um, there, there has been no update to the original Google Home, which is two years old now. So we have the $50 Home Mini, the $130 Google Home and now the $150 um, 
uh, home hub and then the $400 home max. It seems like a pretty disjointed lineup right now. Where do you see it going in the future? I I just wanted to check because I, I knew that you could get a regular, you know, old school Google home for pretty cheap. And it seems like the going rate is about $100 now, which is enough separate like that bottom end kind of makes a little more sense if you were to think of the Google Home as having a permanent drop to 99. And I don't know why they haven't done that. That would keep you at like the 40 to $50 at 100 and then 150. And then the Home Max is just kind of weird uh, up in the top end for that nobody's going to buy. Don't at me, Phil. But I think that they could use an update for the Google Home Maybe it does just get updated and come in at 99 or something, but it needs an update because it just doesn't really fit design wise with the like the home mini and the home hub look like they're of the same family. But the home, the standard home kind of stands out now and it's compared to the home hub. It's pretty big for what it does. If they would just put an audio out on the the home mini, all they need to make is the smart hub and the home mini and trash the rest. That's fair. Yeah, I and guess that's, that's what true. they'd sell. It, it is. Yeah, especially if they, when they updated it for audio out, they just make the home mini just sound a little better. And then you would really obviate do, the need do for a standard exactly home. What, do exactly what Amazon did with the Echo uh, Dot. I, I, I probably said the wrong thing. I'm sorry. Amazon. No, no, you did. Dot. Okay. <laughs> that's okay. You're not, you're not making anybody's speaker go off. Uh, you know, you have to say Alexa, 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 Alexa a bunch of times oh, for that stop. to happen. But that is an <laughs> interesting <laughs> point that you bring up Amazon because talk about a disjointed product lineup. They have, you know, the input dot standard echo, echo plus, and then you have an Echo Sub you can connect. You can connect multiple Echoes, multiple Echo Pluses, and they still have the show. And the, and the uh, what's the other one? Spot. They've got a million different versions. Because and a clock, they just, and a microwave, and a blah, blah, blah. But, yeah. but after, after going through all that, I can, I'll, I'll, I'll say the same thing for Amazon. Sell your, your smallest version that you can make and provide an audio output jack as cheap as you can and then your premium version and throw the rest away. But here, I mean, we're, we're talking about Google, uh, the company that's trying to get rid of inputs and outputs. This will, yeah, you know, the home, the home still connect, the, the home still connects to a Bluetooth speaker if you do want to make it sound better. But honestly, I think the original home, and I've been comparing them today, the 2016 home sounds only slightly worse than the 2018 Echo Plus. Um <laughs> And, and, you know, that's, that, that's something to be yeah. said because Google made the, the Google Home a very, very yes. high quality speaker when the Echo itself was not was great. Garbage, right. So, I, and you and I had that discussion when the Home first came out. We were surprised. Yeah, it, it, it definitely punched above its weight. I think it's now kind of overtaken a little bit. And I don't think the Home Hub sounds as good as the Home. Uh, the speaker's a little bit smaller, but... Uh, you know, it's a better product overall because it has that. that what screen. about the home hub compared to the smart screen or for uh, a smart display for sound? You're going to have to talk to Russell about that. I wanted him to come on and talk about that, but mm-hmm. um, stay tuned next week because the home hub review will be, will be out uh, early, early next week. And that product I think will be the flagship smart display for a while. Um, even though it's cheaper, I think it's going to be it's going to get the most attention, mind share, and it's 
I think it's going to help the other companies like Lenovo and um, JBL and LG and Sony with their own. What's weird is that JBL quietly launched its smart display in September, but it hasn't really made much of a buzz. We haven't received ours yet. And LG keeps pushing back the launch of theirs. Uh, it's It was supposed to be released in September, and it's nowhere to be found. And the name has changed about yeah. 40 times. <laughs> so well, I'm not even sure you, what it's called. If you had seen that name, you would probably change it too. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's let's take a quick break, and we'll talk about our, our buddies at Thrifter. Because they're they've always got our back and and we we have theirs as well uh, as as we do every week you know we go to thrifter.com and we choose a deal that we like uh, Andrew since you have to bounce I'm gonna let you go first because um, you know I know that you have a good deal for us this week yes uh, so you know I'm a big fan of of Lacroix but I'm also <laughs> just a fan of every kind of sparkling water you can get some uh you can get 24 bottles of perrier drop shipped to you for 13 dollars. that's so now, much fizz and perrier is uh, expensive because it's french of course it's it's supposed to be exotic and fancy so don't don't go buy them onesie twosie for like two or three dollars a piece at whole foods don't be an animal buy them 24 at a time which you know will last you about a week uh for 13 dollars that's a great deal for some very, you can very buy these delicious things online. fizzy water. Don't I, have I to didn't, go to the grocery store for that. I'm I'm really pissed because Amazon.ca up here used to sell LaCroix right after oh, it Whole Foods got... Well, yeah, I, I guess they ran out of stock because I must have bought it all. Uh, they just <laughs> never refilled it. Now it's shipping in one to two months, and I now have to go to a physical retail store to buy it, like said animal. So I just, I, I've stopped drinking it. It's, uh, it's too much Dang. work with a baby. Um, all right, Andrew, thank you. Have a great weekend, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Yes. Bye, Thanks, Andrew. guys. See you next week. Don't get right. bitten by rattlesnakes. Jerry, <laughs> okay, uh, we know that you like um, you like all things headphones. Is that one of your selections this week, or do you nah, got something better for us? No, this, th- there's one that really caught my eye because it's my favorite little device, Logitech Harmony, on sale for 48 bucks. That a remote? That's the remote, right? That's that's the remote and the little smart hub that you can turn. It it, it has IR blaster out of the hub and it goes on your Wi-Fi network and it's it's amazing and it works with everything and I love this little gadget. I if you look on our site somewhere, I'll make sure I get the URL to Jim so we can have a link there. I go into depth about why I love this little thing and it's almost half price. Buy one. Just buy it and then figure out what you're going to do with it. Well, I mean, if you have a TV plus X, like you can have literally any uh, smart TV accessory connected, you'll probably oh, I, benefit from a, yeah, from a Logitech I, Harmony. I control my lights. I can't wait to get my Amazon microwave so I can use it to push a button and pop popcorn from my Logitech remote because I will make it happen. All right. Well, I wait. I look forward to the uh, the blog post detailing that. <laughs> Uh, Alex, what's on your docket for the week? So mine's a bit of a a different one. Um, Victorinox Swiss Army Knife for $24. So uh, see, this one has 14 different functions. You've got a bunch of blades on there, little scissors, uh, bottle opener, and uh, corkscrew. Of course, the the two most important ones there. 
<laughs> and uh, yeah, twenty-four US dollars, twenty-three ninety-nine um, uh, has been seen for as high as fifty bucks. So, great little tool to have around the place if you don't already own something like that. All right. Well, um, that's that's a pretty decent deal for a very handy little accessory. Um, I'm also going to talk about a handy accessory that I just discovered the advantages of this week. Uh, I'm talking, of course, about mechanical keyboards. Jerry, you're smiling. <laughs> I know you are. I, know, I ordered you know my I first am. mechanical keyboard this week. It just came a couple of days ago, and I'm tap, tap, tapping away, waking people up in the middle of the night with my cherry blue switches. Um, this is not the one I bought. This is the Corsair K65 Lux RGB mechanical keyboard, down from $115 to $85. Custom RGB lighting, USB pass-through, Cherry MX red switches, so they're a little bit quieter, uh, a little bit easier to press than the blue switches that are typical of, like, you know, writers. This is more for gaming, but at the same time, a mechanical keyboard is a mechanical keyboard. I, I honestly did not believe what a difference it made until I had one in front of me. It is incredible. It is so much fun to use, and I think everybody who writes for a living or who just writes a lot in general should have a mechanical keyboard at their desk, um, unless you li- unless you work in a in an office, uh, and then you should definitely have one because you will be the least popular person right. in your you office. Get, get the brown switches <laughs> and just drive everybody insane and look yeah. at them and say, "So what?" Um, I think it was ZDNet that has a really good overview video, or it's CD CNet or ZDNet. Just look up mechanical switches on Google. Uh, to see the differences between the red, the blue, yeah. the brown, the gray. Now uh, there's a, there's a special edition gray one. I think um, you can even. I, I think it's. I think it's through Cherry itself. You can buy a thing for two ninety nine that has like three of each key. It does nothing. You don't plug it in, but you can feel it and tap it yourself. If it's your first foray, that's probably a wise idea if you can still do that. That's so funny. It's like a like a tester unit. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's a really and good in, idea. In any case, the switches are... I've never seen a keyboard where you couldn't just change the switches by taking the back cover off. Because I, I use a, a mix of brown, red, and blue. And I always have to customize it myself. So. That's That's hilarious. Of course you do. Um, just for, you know, for anybody who is interested, uh, the one that I got was from HyperX, which is a brand owned by Kingston. You may know them as makers of like RAM and various other PC accessories. Um, mine is a much more simple version. It's, um, the alloy FPS RGB with the blue switches and it's pretty great. I'm, I'm a big fan. Um, all right, so let's, let's move on to the next one but before we do that i just wanted to say thank you to our friends at thrifter for sponsoring the podcast if you are interested in learning more about these deals and many others go to thrifter.com sign up for their newsletter uh i'm representing canada alex is representing britain we now have a uk and a canada newsletter that goes out every day you just go to thrifter.com slash ca for canada thrifter.com slash UK for uh, for Britain, UK, and you can get those customized newsletters in your inbox every morning. And you can find all of those deals at Thrifter Daily on Twitter. All right, Alex, uh, tell us about the 
Huawei Mate 20 series because there are three phones, they are big, and there are lots of cameras. And I want one of them. <laughs> yeah, so the one most people are going to care about is the Mate 20 Pro. That's the big sort of all singing, all dancing, relatively reasonably sized phone that has basically everything. Not Maybe not quite everything, but we'll get to that a bit later. So the regular Mate 20 Pro kind of takes the, the core of the the Pro's internals, you've got the new Kirin processor, which is the first uh, 7 nanometer Android processor, has a bunch of technical firsts in there, which is designed to basically make it more powerful, more efficient than pretty much any other Android chip out there right now. Um, so, I mean, I'll, I'll get the regular Mate 20 out of the way because it's not massively interesting. It's going to be sold, I guess, mainly in Asia because it, it appeals to that audience, uh, especially, you know, business people over there. You just want a big screen. You don't necessarily want any of the extra all singing, all dancing extras. So, uh, yeah, 6.5-inch screen, 18.7 by 9. Uh, feels, you know, it's a pretty big phone in the hand, not excessively big. Uh, you know, 6 gigs of RAM, uh, 128 gigs of storage, and a RGBW LCD display. So a very, very bright 800-nit display in a, in a phone that isn't actually selling for, you know, ridiculous. It's, it's still expensive, but not ridiculous flagship money. This isn't a 1,000-euro phone. Um, and you have a triple camera array around the back, including wide angle, uh, just not quite as uh, you know highly specced as the Pro. The Pro is essentially you know the pinnacle of what Huawei can create right now. So it's got a 2K screen. It's 19.5 by 9. Uh, you have in-screen fingerprint in this phone. You have 3D face unlock like the iPhone in this phone with uh, not just using a camera to do that, but actually blasting... IR uh, lasers at your face to be able to create a 3D map so it's faster and it's more accurate. Uh, you also have Android 9 Pie in all the Mate 20 phones uh, based on EMUI 9, which uh, still one or two software weirdness things going on there, mainly to do with the, the task switcher, which I'll get to later, but generally just a lot smoother and a lot nicer looking, a lot better designed than anything we've seen from Huawei in the past. Um, what makes this phone interesting to me, though, you know, I, I guess we could talk about the CPU on a technical level. It's more advanced. It's more efficient. Uh, they were even going into details like the GPS is more accurate, the Wi-Fi is faster than anything anything else out there. Which you know, Huawei makes all this stuff themselves. They're a technology and a um, you know a actual semiconductor company and an infrastructure company as well as selling consumer products. So they can do all this stuff that arguably you know not many other people aside from Apple and, and Qualcomm can do. Uh, but besides that, battery. So you've got a 4,200 milliamp hour battery, 40 watt quick charging. It's almost double what they had before with Supercharge, uh, the first gen of Supercharge that we got a couple of years ago. Now we're up to uh, 40 watts up from 22.5. So uh, the, the quoted time for that is zero to 70% in 30 minutes, I believe. So that's a, a just a ridiculous level of fast charging. There is kind of a trade-off there. So... Um, Went to an interview with Richard Yu, group interview session after the presentation earlier this week. Um, when you do fast charging this so fast, there is a trade-off in terms of the capacity that you can put in there. They could have gone to 4,500 milliamp hours in the Pro if they wanted to stay at the older supercharging level. They decided it was important to have this feature, so you have 4,200, not 45. Uh, it's kind of interesting to see that. But the really interesting thing, the cameras. So the cameras in the Pro and the cameras in the Mate 20 X, which we'll get to later. Um, essentially, you've got the two 
you got uh, well the main camera and the zoom camera from the P20 Pro. So the 40 megapixel, which takes 10 megapixel shots using uh, pixel binning. So you have a lot of possibilities there in terms of digital zoom, in terms of capturing really great looking low light scenes. Uh, you've got that. You've also got three times uh, optical zoom, which is, you know, those are the same two sensors on paper. But I've noticed this camera takes better images with both sensors and both lenses compared to the P20 Pro. Interesting to see that just because, you know, it shows the difference that you can get with a newer ISP and with just a faster uh, faster processing in general. Uh, the new thing is ultra wide angle. This is something that we mainly only see from LG in the flagship space but Huawei is doing something a little bit different. The um, f-stop is f2.2, so it's uh, it's not as bright a lens as LG has, but they have higher resolution. It's a 20 megapixel sensor in the, the Mate 20 Pro, and it's autofocus. So they actually have a, a really unique macro mode that you can go into or that will activate automatically when you get really, really close to a subject. I forget the exact number, but you can get very, very close to, to objects with the, the wide-angle lens, and it means you can capture a unique view of your subject and also fit a bunch of scenery and a bunch of background in as well. Uh, and that's in addition to be able to take the sh- kind of shots that until now we've only really been able to get on LG phones. So you have a really, really uh, capable, diverse set of photo features there. You can go as far back as uh, Huawei calls it in the app, uh, 0.6x, 0.6 times, which is a little bit of a weird way of, of um, <laughs> naming that. Then you have 1x, 3x and 5x and basically you're getting more detail in every step it's only when you go beyond 5x that you're basically dealing with a digital crop from the the zoom sensor so um yeah there's a, a hell of a lot of interesting stuff going on here and this um you know without wanting to get to spoilers for the review next week uh is probably the best um photo uh, best phone in terms of photography and uh, a very strong contender for for one of our phones of the year there they also do a lot of computational stuff on board on their, they have a million co-processors in their SOC. So the, I, you mean the neural processing unit? The yeah. MPU? Yeah. I, I yeah. wonder if how that's tied into the camera because that's, you said the coolest thing is the camera. No, the coolest thing is that Kieran. That's why I want to see uh, one. Well, that's, that's what enables the camera, right? Yeah. That's, um, and in, yeah, yeah. It's, and the, they're using that for um, predictive autofocus. They're using that for scene detection. Um, you know, they have a, a, a discrete ISP as well as that. Yeah. But when, whenever you're taking photos, you know, the, the MPU is fired up and it's it's detecting scenes. It's looking at what's in the photo and it's processing each image according to what it sees and what, what Huawei thinks will produce the, the best looking shot at the end of the day. So, yeah, the reason they can do that is because they've made that investment and made their own processor. Arguably, if you're just using an off-the-shelf Snapdragon, you'd be able to get some pretty great images like Google's been able to do in the past, but you would have the same tool set there as everyone else. Huawei has its own toys that only it can play with. And they can adjust them however they think they need adjusted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I obviously have used the P20 Pro uh, as you have, Alex. Um, the two sensors that are familiar are, are, are similar in the P20 uh, the 40 megapixel RGB, and um, there's that telephoto, uh, the 3x telephoto. Are those the same sensors as the ones in the Mate 20, or are they the ones uh, in this phone uh, newer generation? They're the same on paper. I don't know for a fact that they're, they're the exact same components. Um, they behave very similarly, but I think most of the differences that I've seen going from P20 Pro to Mate 20 Pro 
has to do with processing. So one of my big complaints with the P20 Pro was how, uh, especially the greenery and blue sky modes would just way over sharpen and way like drag down the shadows to the point where often you would get a bad looking image um, just because of the, the processing would go way overboard. That's not happening anymore. Images are a little bit softer, but they're, they're more pleasing. And I think they're more accurate even in these AI modes now. So you'll see differences compared to the P20 Pro, but I'm pretty sure it is mostly just differences in the way it's processing. Maybe helped along a little bit by the fact that you have the new ISP, the new MPU, and just a you know faster processing across the board. Okay, so let's talk about that processing because Huawei went a little bit really well, really heavy on the AI enhancements. Now, um, you know, you've said that they are able to depict and only adjust certain parts of the image as opposed to the whole image at once. So you'll see a bluer sky, but not necessarily a more, you know, saturated face in the photo. Um, how does that work in in reality? And, and does it actually make a big difference? It's hard to tell, right? Because it doesn't tell you when it's doing this stuff. This is something you just have to take a bunch of pictures and then kind of judge for yourself how, you know, how, how it, it brings stuff out. Uh, a big thing they were talking about for the new MPU, though, was the ability to do more granular object recognition within a scene. So that means uh, saying not just, okay, here is a scene that broadly shows like a sunset, but here's, um, you know, a woman in a red dress by sunset. And if you, there's a particular video mode that you can go into that'll pick out certain colors, uh, you don't need to specify the color. It will kind of go in there, look for you for the most dominant color. It will bring that out um, and give you kind of a cinematic effect where it'll draw out, say, a red or a very bright blue or green and then desaturate the rest. That's a, an example of it using the MPU to, to do, I guess, color analysis, but also uh, figure out what's going on in the scene and figure out, okay, this is a person, so we want to, uh, you know, this is a vehicle, this is a, an animal, and say, okay, we want to bring out saturation in this because it's a thing that's moving around the scene. It's likely to be the subject of the scene. Something else they're doing, and it, it's a bit harder to judge the quality of this because I've only taken a few shots with it, uh, is software, well, not software, but artificial bokeh in video. We've had this in photos for a while. Now Huawei's doing it in video. And the way it does this is, again, using the MPU to figure out what is what is likely to be the um, the subject of the scene. So if it detects a person, probably chances are that's what you take in a video of, and it can then use the the three cameras to judge depth. It can keep it locked on that one person, and it can use the uh, the predictive autofocus to kind of proactively figure out where it might go um, and just take it from that. That's that. I mean, the the things that Huawei are doing, uh, it it's sort of they're they're running parallel to what Google's doing in the sense that they are taking the data that's being collected by uh the the sensors and 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 working very hard with them but i think the the end goal the, the the finished product is is very different because i think the audiences are quite different the audiences of a, a huawei you know the result of a huawei um photo is, is looking for a little bit more saturation more contrast more dynamic range more everything right there's very little true to life of uh, when you see a, a Huawei phone. And yet the company claims that it's doing exactly that, that it's trying to make its photos a little bit less obviously processed. Um, do you think they found that compromise this year? I think they're closer. They're a lot closer to it. So like I was saying before, a lot of these AI modes before 
were almost overdone, right? I, you mentioned blue sky and greenery. Those are, you know, depending on the scene, those would be like way overblown, way over um, sharpened last year or you know, last year. This year, it seems like last year in the P20 Pro. Now with the Mate 20, it's a little bit more subtle. It means it's not as obvious when it kicks in. You have to kind of look at which AI mode it's going into. Um, but I think they they are getting a lot closer to just having a really great looking image, regardless of, of what... Um, you're taking a picture of and not necessarily uh, just having this highly, highly processed look like you had a little bit, especially with, with a telephoto um, on, on the P20 Pro. Um, yeah, and the, so like you say, similar thing to what Google's doing with that. They're approaching it from kind of like a, a silicon manufacturer from a company that controls everything from the top down in a way that Google even still doesn't because they're reliant on Qualcomm and on uh, Foxconn to, to actually do the, the heavy lifting for them. So yeah, they've come a long way. And if you told me maybe two years ago that I'd be genuinely torn between you know a Google made phone and a Huawei made phone, I think you were crazy. But that's where we are, and it's mainly because of the cameras, right? Um, it's there's there's a lot going on there, and I think of all the companies doing d- double or triple camera, uh, Huawei has probably the most going for them. Um, Actually, something interesting to go into is the fact that you have the really great low light mode that was in on the main sensor in the P20 Pro. Now you can use that with a wide angle, which combined with the fact that wide angle is also autofocus, it's LG's trademark feature from the past several years. But Huawei, uh, at their first attempt, is doing so much more with a wide angle than LG has ever really attempted. Right. Yeah. And I, I think that just goes to show how quickly Huawei is improving uh, both its software, its its ability to use all of these machine learning uh, data points to actually improve photos without ruining them. Um, you know, I do wish that you could more easily turn off those AI modes. Um, I don't know if it's still the same now, but with the P20 Pro, it detects a scene you press X and you and they redetect it like redetects it exactly. <laughs> it's so yeah. frustrating. Um, That's still there. It's still super easy to just turn all of them off though in in the menu. But yeah, like before, you can't just turn off one that might be irritating to you. Like if you don't like the way it processes blue skies or something, you can't just kill that mode. You have to kill all of them. You can't just uncheck one. Okay, so let's talk about the phone itself. This has an in-display fingerprint sensor. The first sure one does. that's going to be widely available outside of China. Let's talk about how um, how it compares to a traditional one and why they chose to go in that direction. Um, I think part of it is just it it was of the level of quality that they could. Um, we had in-screen fingerprint in the, the super expensive uh, Porsche design Mate RS earlier in the year. It was bad. They knew it was bad because they also put a traditional fingerprint on the back. So you could use that instead of in-screen if you wanted to. Uh, what they're using now is a different kind of technology. It's uh, dynamic pressure sensing, I think, with 10 levels of sens- uh, levels of pressure sensing uh, to detect your fingerprint. It's a lot faster. It's a lot more accurate. It's a lot less prone to errors. You do still have to use it in kind of a different way compared to the way you would use a traditional capacitive fingerprint sensor. If you think you can just kind of brush the tip of your finger, uh, your finger on the screen and have it unlock, it's not the way these work. You've got to kind of plant your thumb right in the center of this and press down, then it will work. If you try and treat it like the fingerprint sensor that's in your um, your Pixel or in your Galaxy phone, you're not going to have a good time. You're going to be frustrated. 
that's not something that's really explained as part of the setup. Um, the setup does take a, a good while longer because it's, uh, you know, you need to actually press down, needs to get a good solid reading on your fingerprint. But you do need to treat it differently to the fingerprint sensor that you're probably used to using. If you do that, though, you're going to have a pretty good time. And so if you don't... Fi- Go ahead, Jerry. It's fairly responsive as long as you push hard enough. Yeah, you just got to plant this plant the center of your finger or plant the center of your thumb right down on it and it's yeah, it's unlocked. It's it's relatively painless. Cool. They've come a long uh, way with also, that technology. Yeah, yeah, it does work pretty well. It's still a time it well, it's hard to say. I mean, it's most of the time I'll say it's slower than what we're used to with capacitive fingerprint. Okay, but maybe it, maybe just slower because it's harder to use, but it feels a little bit slower. It's not taking upwards of thirty seconds like the very first demo I saw of that tech. <laughs> no, so, it isn't. No, uh, that's yeah. Uh you also have like the face ID clone setup, which works pretty much in the same way as Apple's. Um that works pretty well as well. There was an article that came out today, I think, on Android Pit that was saying that similar looking people can unlock each other's phones, which we'll need to look into in, in greater detail, but Part of me thinks just that's not too surprising anyway, given the resolution of, of the image it creates and, and stuff like that. But we'll we'll just have to see if that becomes a bigger problem. Uh, for me, uh, yeah, the learning experience of using in-screen fingerprint took a day or so to actually figure out how to use it in a reliable way every time. Um, but yeah, currently have, have no issues with using either of these things to to unlock this phone. But then there was, there is also a Face ID-like 3D facial scanning technology inside the notch that negates the need for any fingerprint sensor at all how does that work you could uh, you could absolutely use this without in-screen fingerprint if you didn't if you just didn't like the way it worked if you didn't like the fact that muscle memory is a bit harder because you've got to think about where it is because it's just in the screen you can't feel around and and figure out where it is uh the stuff in the notch works fine um you know it even works in extreme darkness because of the way uh it, it actually the technology behind it like apple it fires a bunch of um, infrared lasers or LEDs, whatever, at your face. Um, obviously, you can't see them, but if you point a camera at them, you can kind of see the way it's, it kind of blasts a little uh, pattern onto your face uh, to detect where it is in three dimensions and uh, figure out if it's you. So it's pretty much just a, a straight-up recreation of what Apple's been using for the, the past year or so in the iPhone ten, and it works pretty well. And, and, I mean, speaking of Apple, obviously, we have to talk about EMUI 9. This is based on Android Pi. Huawei's mm-hmm. making a big deal about how much more simple and straightforward and intuitive this is, but based on what I've seen, it still airs on the side of iOS. Um, it still does, yeah. A lot of the irritations that were in earlier versions are there, and it's still kind of baby steps with them, right? Because um, you know, Huawei is a, is a big ship. They've built a lot of features into EMUI that they don't want to just um, get rid of with every single release, but um, it's it's pretty nice the only issues i've come across um are around the recent apps menu so you have full screen gestures now which if you want to use them can create issues with some apps because of the way the back button works uh so the way going back works is if you don't have buttons on the screen if you go with a full screen gesture navigation swipe up to go home like the iphone swipe home and hold as a swipe up and hold to go into recent apps or swipe inwards from the left or right bezel to go back and if you're thinking this might cause problems in some apps with hamburger menus then you'd be absolutely right because apps like slack apps like gmail apps like google apps if you swipe in inwards from the left bezel um it's instead of getting your hamburger menu you go back and the only way to get into the hamburger menu is to swipe at the very top of the screen which is kind of awkward because it's the very top of the screen i'm shaking my uh, head no so hard to- right now 
there's no way to have it just on the right side because obviously there are fewer apps that have you know swipe activated controllers from the the right hand side of the screen. So it, it just makes the whole thing a little bit awkward to use if you want to use full screen gestures. Um, you need to think a little bit more about how you use the apps. Also, when you're going home, when you swipe up to go home, um, that breaks um, Patreon picture mode. So if you do that at YouTube, it won't activate Patreon picture. It'll just go home. Um, so yeah. Okay. Um, big question is obviously it's not coming to the u.s in any major way but this is probably up there with the best flagships of the year competes really well with the note 9 yeah um where do you see it fitting in especially given its thousand euro plus price um for me this is probably a top three fun um, just between everything it can do for as good a camera as it is and for all the stuff it has in there, for the amazing battery life. Uh, and by the way, not only is there wireless charging in this phone, but it can wirelessly charge other phones. Go on the battery menu, tap reverse wireless charging, stick it face down on a table. You can stick an iPhone or even a Galaxy Note on there and it will immediately start, or you know, after a second or two, detect that it's there and start charging wirelessly. It's, uh, it's pretty amazing. All right. Now I want one even more. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely uh, just wanted to throw that in there. Uh, as an overall package, though, uh, I again, what, software is always the thing with Huawei, right? There's a little. And by the way, this is non-final software that I'm dealing with here, so things may well change as things tend to with with Huawei phones. But yeah, everything for the most part just works if you use it in the default out-of-box configuration. It's the least, uh, you know, the, the least buggy Huawei software I've used on day one by a long way. Even you know, much more so than the Mate 10 was last year. Um, and I think it's going to be the battery life, it's going to be the performance, and it's going to be the cameras probably more than anything else that makes this uh, this device sell. Oh, man, I really th- wish that it was coming to the U.S. But alas, uh, it might be sold on Amazon in the U.S. We've yet to see how Huawei is going to do the you know post-ban distribution. Uh, I do know that it's coming to Canada, though. It'll be sold by mm-hmm. Canadian carriers like the P20 Pro. Uh, it'll be available in Twilight and uh, and the black model. Um, before Ooh. we before we move on Whoa, to the max, come on, come on, no, no, let's <laughs> let's oh, okay, let's do let's talk about your thing and do the backs because that that's criminal. They didn't stock any of the the hyper optic finishes. Yeah, yeah, I want I wanted to talk about that because the I love the Twilight version of the P twenty Pro, but what what's really intriguing to me is a as a glass back phone that doesn't fall off every surface I put it on. Um, talk about this optic. Uh, what is it like a hyper optic pattern? So it's it's kind of a very subtle, almost vinyl record like pattern on the back of this thing. So you can see it when you tilt it through the light. You can also feel it when you hold it in your hand. It doesn't collect fingerprints as easy. It doesn't feel quite as greasy as the uh, the smooth glass versions, like the single, solid colors and the, even the Twilight does. So it's um, you know, probably likely to show scratches more, just because it is a pattern that's etched into the glass, as opposed to being a just a flat sheet of, of well, not entirely flat, but a curved sheet of glass. Um, but yeah, I'm very surprised the carriers didn't pick up any of these new textures because um, obviously Twilight has a very unique and very beautiful look to it. Um, the black model is like why even bother? It's it's a glass uh, glass backed um, black phone, which like every other boring phone out there. Um, I think if you're after something a little bit different in in a glass phone, this uh, looks and feels like uh, no other glass phone out there. So it's the kind of thing that's hard to describe that you kind of just need to go into a store to experience, which is means it's all the more disappointing that 
uh, carriers in Canada have chosen not to stock it. To be fair, though, Canadian carriers are extremely conservative when it comes to colors and phones. Um, They're also extremely evil, right? I wouldn't put it past them just to do this out of spite. I won't argue with you there. So um, Mate 20 Pro, we knew the Mate 20 and Mate 20 Pro were coming. We didn't know of the the the, the cutting board uh, of the Mate 20X. <laughs> um, tell us about that enormous device. So yeah, spec-wise, this is kind of positioned 50-50, well, I don't know, like 60-40 between the Pro and the regular Mate 20. So it has um, yeah, the CPU and the 6 gigs of RAM and storage and everything else of the Mate 20 Pro. It has the cameras of the Mate 20 Pro, crucially, because the regular Mate 20 does use a, a slightly downgraded camera setup. Um, it has splash resistance, IP54, I think, as opposed to IP68 in the Pro. But what you do get is a giant screen, um, 18.7 by 9, 7.2-inch OLED screen, uh, 1080p. So it's not the highest resolution. It actually looks pretty good. It's still you know, a decent resolution for a handheld device. And uh, fingerprint around the back. So you have more traditional fingerprint setup. Actually, the fingerprint sensor is, is kind of ridiculously high at the back. You'd have to reach a little bit to press it. Um, but it's still probably doable. So no in-screen fingerprint and no 3D face unlock. You've got traditional face unlock just to do a single... Um, camera on the front. But that also means, of course, you've got the tiny dewdrop notch. You have a much higher screen-to-body ratio, which is probably suitable for a device that is as much about the screen as the Mate 20X. But um, the main focus of this, obviously, is the screen, but it's the battery as well. So 5,000 milliamp hour battery in there. They've gone all out. Again, I talked about kind of the, the trade-off between battery size and charging speeds. They've knocked it down to the, the older supercharging at 22.5 watts, but in exchange for that, you get a 5,000 milliamp hour battery. So you can go continuous gaming for like six and a half hours. And they also have a new vapor chamber cooling system in there with um, graphene included. Not sure in what capacity. I'm not a material scientist, but they have that included in there. And that apparently makes the cooling better, um, which I'll just have to take their word for. But yeah, this is your big sort of um, gaming phone uh, with all the latest specs, your giant screen phone, your you know, businessman phone. Uh, you probably shouldn't surprise anyone to hear that it's going to be sold primarily in Asia, where big phones are a thing anyway. When I looked at this thing, I kind of saw Mate 7, Mate 8 style body, but instead uh, filled out with screen. They didn't do what they did with the Mate 10 last year, the regular Mate 10, and just kind of trimmed down the bezels. They kept the old body size, but they actually filled out the entire thing with screen and battery. So this is your uh, sort of over-the-top powerhouse phone that maybe isn't as practical on an everyday level because there isn't the water resistance uh you don't get the the bragging rights of in-screen fingerprint but if you care about the technology you care about having just the most ridiculous battery life that you would never even be able to kill this thing in a day this is the phone for you and actually um talking to richard you ceo of uh, huawei uh consumer business group this is the phone he's using right now because uh he's the kind of guy that that values that performance and values the battery life so it's a ridiculous phone, um, but someone has to make it, and it doesn't surprise me that that someone is Huawei. Whew. Okay, so we have three phones. We have a lot of specs and cameras and, and, and whatnot. Um, when can we expect this phone to be available to most of the world, or these phones? I think the first round of releases is going to be end of this month. I think the 26th is the date in Europe. Um, Europe obviously is focusing more on the Pro because the Pro is the more mainstream device. It's, you know, Huawei has settled on this kind of six inch ish phone, 
Uh, I guess we're up to 6.39 it now that we don't have anything on the front. But um, yeah, that's that's why you'll be able to get a hold of it. And, um, you know, it's not too surprising that we have, you know, the main series used to be about the screen, right? Uh, it used to be kind of this TikTok cycle where you had the P series, which was mainstream, and the Mate series, which was all about the power users. Now they're kind of doing the same thing, but I think they, they're in a position now with carriers, especially in Europe, where they're willing to sell um, just a success, a straight-up successor uh, to the earlier phone six months down the line. And that means they can be very competitive with the products they bring to market. And, you know, at the same time, if you're buying, say, a P20 Pro, you're going to get a much better deal on it because it's previous generation phone. And um, if you want to go all out, then, yeah, I, I would say, especially in Europe, this is probably one of the best Android phones you're going to be able to buy this year. Crazy. And then uh, we do have that leather-bound Mate 20 Pro Porsche Edition. Uh, <laughs> how much is that going to cost? Uh, I think the low end for that is something like 1,700 euros. The high end around 2,100. And um, they've, they've kind of gone back and forth in these Porsche design phones, right? Um, originally, it was just an offshoot of the Mate series. Um, then early this year, we had the uh, Porsche design Mate RS, which was sort of the internals of a P20 Pro, but put into this very Samsung-like body with bad in-screen fingerprint. Um, now we have, uh, we're, we're back to sort of it just being a, a reshelled sort of um, Mate phone. So it's the essence of the Mate 20 Pro, and they've added in 8 gigs of RAM and 256 gigs of storage, or 8 gigs of RAM and 512 gigs of storage. So you have just insanely over-the-top hardware in there, but what's more insane than what's on the inside is what's on the outside because they've replaced the all-glass back with a combination of a glass stripe down the middle and leather sides. It almost looks a little bit like a Virtu phone, if you remember the, the designs they used to do with with like a leather section and then metal in the middle. Think think of that except with, with glass now. Um, so yeah, you have uh, you have a lot of phone for your money, but also just a lot of money to spend in general to get this very exclusive product. Yeah. I exactly. The, oh. one, one interesting thing that I'm I don't think we've actually reported is that if you're the kind of, maybe interesting to you if you're the kind of person that cares about Porsche design phones if you're just Scrooge McDuckin around in, in a load of, of money listening to this podcast um, they are going to limit themselves to one uh, Porsche design release per year from now on and it's going to be the Mate series not the P series so there's not going to be another Porsche design around the time of the P30 next year just because of the costs associated with the design and just getting a phone ready in that space of time. Uh, they did it last year because the Porsche design phone uh, folks wanted to do it. Uh, next year, they're not going to. So it's going to be limited to once yearly release. And I would imagine, given the way the Mate series works, it would basically be you know, largely spec upgrades and cosmetic improvements, which is probably more in line with what the people buying uh, you know, a PD phone um, uh, are likely to appreciate. Yeah, 100%. Okay, so that's that's that. We'll we'll hear lots more about the Mate 20 series, including the Mate 20 Pro and Mate 20 X, when uh, Alex's and uh, Nirav's review reviews, I guess, drop later in the month. Uh, and then we're getting ready. Uh, you know, it's it's nine. What is it today? The the nineteenth. Um, in 10 days, so you, it was 11 days, but then Apple intervened. In 10 days, we have the OnePlus 6T event, where we will expect a minor refresh of the OnePlus 6. Uh, and we will 
have lots and lots and lots to say about that phone when it's uh, when it's announced. So, guys, absolutely. Um, do we have anything else to talk about to round out the first part? This is a pretty long first part of the ACP 400 episode. Just to say that if you think we're done with new phone launches this month, you are sorely mistaken. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> well, this, that this sounds month, ominous. This, this, it's like a threat. Well, no. It, it, like, to me, it almost is a threat. It's, a <laughs> it's been a crazy month already. Um, and I, I, Actually, I guess we have some stuff coming in November as well. But it's going to be a, a very, very busy um, a sort of holiday phone shopping season. So of the things that we know are coming, I guess we got um, – the OnePlus 6T that you already talked about, we got the Razer Phone 2, and we got some other surprises coming along the line as well. So it's going to be, again, uh, a, a lot more fun stuff coming in the next few weeks. All right. Well, Alex, Jerry, thank you so much for being a part of episode 400. Thank you so much for being a part of the Android Central podcast in general. Um, if you're listening to this, stick around. Go get a coffee, go get a beer, whatever. There is another part to this podcast we are making episode 400 worth your zero dollars um please visit thrifter do us a favor uh we really really do put a lot of work into these podcasts so thank you again my name is daniel bader ara and des are coming up in just a few seconds and we will be back to our regular weekly schedule starting next week So thank you for bearing with us as we put together this special edition episode. Take care and have a great week. See you later. Adios. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Hey, everyone. It's Ara with the Android Central Podcast, and I am here with Des Smith from T-Mobile. And we are here to talk about the very fascinating and now very long history of Android hardware over the years. Let's talk about some of our favorite phones. Now, Des, um, you actually still have like the original Android phone. You still have a working G1 and you were using it a little while back. Um, can you talk about the excitement around that phone when it first launched? Sure, sure. Absolutely. Very uh, happy to be here, by the way. Thanks so much for having me, you guys. So G1, yeah, um, I'm actually, I'm in the room uh, in our house where I have uh, just boxes and boxes of this stuff. Uh, And uh, I actually have several G1s that still work. Um, But the excitement around that device was something else. I remember um, being kind of incognito, of course, when we were going down and working with Google and Mountain View for months and months before the uh, announcement actually happened. And um, they were warning me, and I, I, I remember it very vividly now to not wear my T-Mobile swag and not uh, have my backpack that had um, T-Mobile logos on it because uh, rumors were already starting to get out there that Google was coming out with a phone. Uh, and then eventually, of course, we made the announcement, and it happened, and that was just an epic, epic day. It happened. Uh, uh, I'm sure that's why we're having the podcast, right? It happened uh, just a while back now. Uh, and that's what we're celebrating. But uh, on that day specifically, we're in New York City. Um, the excitement and the level of energy at that event was just tremendous. It was it was like nothing I'd ever seen before, and uh, kind of like nothing we've ever seen since. We were we knew we were making something special and something very different. But I think literally that day we saw that we were in fact probably changing the world. Yeah. No. I mean, it, it's very hard to think of 
where the mobile market would be and where we would be as consumers today without Android and the many, many ways that it has changed the mobile landscape. Uh, Although I have to say in the early days of Android, manufacturers, a lot of people still aren't really fond of this, but manufacturers had a lot of control over how things looked and felt. Android phones today are a little bit more standardized by Google in order to make sure that things like the notification shade and the quick settings and everything, they work consistently and they look good across different phones. But um, do you have a personal favorite of those uh, skins that uh, Android used to have more often, the Touch touch Wiz and uh, trying to remember LG Sense, I think it was called? Yeah, so, uh, well, Sense was actually HTC, uh, and then TouchWiz, of course, is Samsung. Uh, and uh, personally, myself, I'm a bit more of a, what we would call a vanilla Android guy. Uh, and so, for instance, the first Nexus that came out was uh, something that I was really excited about. I mean, back in the, the G1 days, I mean, technically, that was vanilla Android. Um, and back then, we looked it looked so modern. Uh, but now we look back and it's it's pretty painful to look at <laughs> from its from its very humble beginnings. Um, yeah, customized uh, back in the early days, Touchways really looked like um, looked like another operating systems uh, uh, visual design language, if we can say. Uh, and so <laughs> that that for sure was a little bit of a turnoff for me for Touchways in its early days. Um, sense was really cool because HTC was, uh, bringing that from the early windows phones. And so we got the cool things like we've got, of course, you know, now what everybody probably remembers best of HTC, that calendar and weather widget that's on the home screen, uh, or it's, I guess it's a calendar and clock, uh, and weather widget. And so things like water droplets on the home screen, um, that would run down the screen. That was really cool back in those early days. That was visually very different than anything else we had seen. And that was truly a custom skin. Yeah, no, that, that widget is definitely something that's very iconic and has been replicated many, many times. Yeah. I do wish that the raindrops live wallpapers, I mean, I think they still come on a number of devices, but there was something very unique about it back in those early days. Um, so apart from the G1, which obviously once it was announced, had a whole lot of hype around it. What was the first Android phone beyond the G1 where the hype really caught you by surprise? Um, so for us, we had a we had a slew of Android phones, of course, uh, at T-Mobile, uh, and eventually they made their way to other carriers. Um, Droid being on Verizon, of course, Droid was really cool and it was a different marketing concept. Um, still very techy. Um, one of my favorites, and probably the first one where I. I couldn't believe how many people really liked the phone we made was actually an LG phone. Um, If you'll remember back, it was the LG G2X. uh, And it was, um, it was essentially vanilla Android. Um, It ran, um, it was the first one with an NVIDIA Tegra processor inside of it. So really graphics intensive. Um, And it was a phone that had a couple of cool special features where, uh, of course, on the top of that phone, it had a micro HDMI out port. Um, and so we could connect that phone up to a TV set. Uh, and with the Tegra processor, it was already playing these really beautiful kind of Tegra enhanced games. Um, so we could connect that phone up to a TV set and demonstrate. Um, there's a company uh, called Madfinger Games, and they had a game called Shadow Gun that looked like a lot of these kind of first person shooters uh, of the early days of gaming. But I mean, from a phone, we demonstrated that phone at E3. Uh, and that phone, um, 
we had it plugged into giant, you know, like 55 inch TVs back in the time. Uh, and people would come and look at the game and, oh, that game looks really cool. Who makes it? And we would show these guys from Madfinger that were playing the game, demoing it for us. And they're like, wait, that's coming from a phone? Um, and that phone was in those days of kind of the Nexus time frame. I'd have to go back and look at my old calendars and tell you exactly when. But it was definitely a kind of a Nexus looking device. But it was an LG phone, really cool industrial design. Um, and, you know, with, with the NVIDIA involvement, people got really crazy about that phone. We actually had, I remember we had some challenges. LG had some software issues. And we were actually trying to find ways to slow down the velocity of the sales of that phone while we could troubleshoot the issues and figure out how to take care of customers and all that good stuff. And at that point, we, we, for all intents and purposes, there was no way to stop selling that phone. It was on fire. People were crazy about that phone. And that was probably one of the first ones that really kind of, um, made me feel like Android was something that people could get fanatical about. Of course we had G1 and we had some my touch phones in those early days. People liked them, but this was a phone that like just people were absolutely crazy about and we, we couldn't keep them on the shelves. And so that was, that was pretty exciting. That was where the, I knew the, that the Android hype, so to speak was real for sure. Okay. The, the G2X was uh, April of 2011. So it was about six to eight months before I, I got super into Android myself because my first Android phone was a uh, a Samsung Captivate Glide because I loved the the physical keyboard back in those days. Because when sure. I first came to Android, I couldn't, I didn't trust the on screen. I didn't trust the capacity. <laughs> I didn't trust the on screen keyboards yet. It took me a long time to get used to those. And and now G boards like the best keyboard in the world, right? <laughs> or one of yeah. the best. It's one of the best. It's it's definitely up there. I know that G board is uh, definitely one of the most popular and one of the most feature rich. Uh, smartphones out there. And speaking of features for phone, well, first let's get back to that. That was a phone that had a whole lot of uh, involvement from NVIDIA. And of course, uh, we used to have chipsets from, we used to have Motorola chipsets, Samsung chipsets, Intel, NVIDIA, and Qualcomm. Everybody, there were so many different processors that could be used for a phone. And today it's, it's basically all Qualcomm. I mean, we have the Samsung Exynos in a couple of phones abroad but here in the u.s it's all qualcomm and do you think that's kind of like helped smartphones because it's standardized all uh the processors are standardized and we basically all the flagships use the same one or has that kind of taken away some of the diversity and the kind of like magic around android phones sure it's an it's an interesting question for sure um I mean, back in those days, we were trying to make, uh, with that specific device, we were trying to make an entertainment and gaming-focused type device. Uh, and so the chipset was the thing that helped us do that. Um, now you're right. It's it's mostly a Qualcomm kind of show, so to speak. Um, and things like screens and is there a headphone jack? Are there stereo front-facing speakers? And things like that uh, are now the things that are hopefully helping um, diversify these, what I call big black rectangles, right? Because I mean, they are, you might have a big black rectangle with sharp edges, or you might have a rounded corner, big black rectangle. You might have a big black rectangle that has a big notch like we've seen recently, or you might have big black rectangles that have small notches. So I think they are starting to look kind of all the same. Um, I always get really excited when I see things like Razer coming out with a gaming phone with the dual front facing speakers. Um, 
you know, that's where I think uh, it's more interesting still to me. But uh, I'm a little bit like you. I came from, well, of course, I helped kind of build Android, uh, maybe one of the original distant godfathers, so to speak. But back then, hardware was the thing that really changed or really kind of set up what that device was about. Um, and of course, as we've moved on, now we're looking at very similar devices with essentially the same processor. So what are the things these guys can do to kind of position a phone to be different or to make it more special or to really fit a customer's needs? Yeah. And yeah, the Razer phone, the dual front facing speakers, I love, but I also love uh, from a, from a theming and customization standpoint that, uh, being able to change the colors and the pulsing for that, uh, Razer logo on the back. Sure. That, that that's something that makes me a little bit nerdy, but uh, because I mean, like, I, it's I want cool. my phone. It's cool. It right? is because <laughs> I mean, like, it it helps the phone stand out and it makes the phone seem less homogenized and boring than a black, like a completely squared off, not a whole lot of round edges, black rectangular box. Sure. But because I mean, like, I I loved phones like like this. The the, the <laughs> Moto X that was had a curved back and you could change the colors. I loved Moto Maker. Loved Moto Maker. Yeah. Um and I mean for um another thing that was great about phones like the Moto X was this one this one had they called it pimply if you got the white face because it had those IR sensors on the front. You could wave mm-hmm. your hand over the phone and it would wake it up and that made me feel like a magician so I loved it. <laughs> but um, are there any but the features like that that and especially other like our, uh, other features like the IR blaster and, of course, recently the headphone jack and removable batteries. So many of these features that used to be at least somewhat out there or somewhat experimented with, most of them are either have completely gone away or are slowly going away. Are there any of those features that you miss? Um, I, you know, it's interesting. Like, like we were talking about earlier in the podcast, um, I used the G1 actually for an entire day. Um, and I don't know how we ever typed on that phone's keyboard back in that day. Um, I was also a product guy in charge of some sidekicks as they came through. And those keyboards still to this day, I mean, that's what's in a lot of these boxes is a bunch of sidekicks. Uh, those keyboards were were really, really magical in terms of the feel, the tactile feedback from the keys, things like that. Um so I think keyboard's still one of those things where I, I still think, uh, you know, a really cool hardware engineer guy somewhere could, um, oh, yeah, look at that right there. I love yep. it. Samsung Captivate Glide. This was my first Android phone. I called right. it Soren. And it's a <laughs> it's a big, wide keyboard. Um, it's got lots of space for you to kind of run across the, the keys and, and reach with your thumbs. Um, didn't probably have a lot of uh, button press travel available to it, but I mean, still no. really... Still really cool. Um, keyboards were cool. I do think this idea of, um, I, I will honestly say, I think ports is something that I'm starting to miss. Uh, more and more, I've been playing, I have a 14-year-old son now, and we've been playing um, a lot of PUBG and a little bit of Fortnite together. And for me, um, you know, as we're talking here on the podcast, I'm wearing a pretty nice set of Sennheiser headphones um, that, of course, always sound better when they're, when they're plugged into the phone uh, and very quickly, of course, these are wireless as well, but they just don't sound as good as when they're routed right in. So for instance, LG, uh, we just announced today as we're recording this podcast that we, uh, we pushed out our 
LG V40 ThinQ. Boy, what a crazy name that one is, right? <laughs> yeah, naming uh, conventions seem to always come back around to the big, the long, the mouthful. Yeah, not not so good. But but anyway, uh, that phone has you know the quad DAC and the 3.5 millimeter jack. And when I plug a solid set of headphones into that phone, music, video games, things like that just sound really, really good. Um, that's a feature that's quickly disappearing that I that I kind of hope it doesn't ever fully go away. But I think I think that's going to be one kind of to answer this question almost in a future sense. I feel like that's one that I'm going to miss most of all. Keyboards were cool. Um, cameras seem to be the next next really cool thing that's uh, being innovated on. So I love that. Uh, but boy, I'm I'm sure going to miss 3.5 millimeter jacks here in the in the not too distant future. I've I've been on. Shortly after I came to Android, I got my first pair of Bluetooth headphones and never really looked back. But you're right. They, it does sound better when you can plug in. But I've, I'm going to miss it sometimes. But at the same time, I also have a whole bunch of wired headphones sitting around my apartment. And I still just reach for the Bluetooth headphones if I want to listen to music while I'm writing. But yeah, I, I definitely understand that it's these are the headphones that we've all had for like 10 or 20 years, a good pair of 3.5 millimeter, a good pair of like regular headphones can last you for decades. Sure. And we're not going to be able to use this with our phones anymore unless we go out and buy a big, complicated, a good quality DAC, considering the one that's inside the phone isn't going to do terribly much. Mm-hmm. And even then, USB-C DACs don't seem to be universally compatible, which is even more scary, I think. Yeah. But, um... Going back to when people are buying phones, and yeah, the headphone jack is a good uh, is a is a deal breaker for a lot of people when they're buying phones right now. But what do you think is the most important thing to folks that are buying a phone right now? Yeah, well, it was it was great that you guys kind of sent over a couple of these questions ahead of time so I could think about it. But this is one that that for sure I believe in wholeheartedly right now. Like we talked about, you know, phones are becoming these big black rectangles. There's a there's kind of I'm starting to see four main price points. Uh, around phones. There's, of course, the very uh, introductory price point free phone kind of level. There's some really nice phones coming out around the $300-ish price point. Um, mm-hmm. Then there's uh, some flagship killers, if you will, your uh, Essential, your OnePlus, um, that are kind of coming in around that $600 price point. And then there's kind of this you know, premium $1,000 price point. And a lot of folks walking into stores, you know, I work for T-Mobile, um, a lot of folks walking into our stores, to Sprint stores, to to any of the competitors, um, they're coming in and they're seeing this dizzying array of phones on the wall, and they're wondering to themselves, you know, how do I choose? How do how do I pick what's right for me? Uh, and with things like equipment installment plans, we've we've all made it very easy for them to kind of get whatever they want. But the real trick, I think, uh, and I, I think the next wave of almost innovation, if you will, is cost in phones or price in phones. Um, and when folks are buying a phone, I would love to see that everybody gets right fitted into the phone that's the right price point and delivers the right performance for their money, so to speak. Um, mm-hmm. That's what I think is probably most important for folks today. My parents, for instance, use um, kind of mid-tier level Samsung devices that have easy mode turned on for them. Uh, my mom came to me and she's like, I need a phone with big buttons. And we go back to that joke of big black rectangles. And I said, well, let me find you a big black rectangle that has big buttons. Uh, and so easy mode is a way to go. And it's a, you know, 
it's at a price point that's affordable to them. It's they're fast enough. They have uh, nice looking screens and big buttons on them. Um, and as folks are buying phones, I think often, you know, I'm guilty of it being a product manager for so many years, working on so many amazing devices and always kind of being in the space race of techs, tech specs and, um, and features and things like that. We've really pushed to give you, to give customers like these supercomputers in their pocket, but not everybody needs a supercomputer in their pocket. Right. And so we've done a great job of making those things sound really cool and exciting, but at the same time, they may not actually be for everyone. So that's where I'm starting to focus my kind of help, if you will, or, or my feedback for folks on the internet is, uh, and through social media is, getting that phone that's right for them. Um, And that could be, that's primarily in this price category because I think that people, you know, the, the, the iPhones of the world are getting super expensive and I'm talking to you right now on a computer and I'm doing some recording here on my note nine, but not everybody can afford a note nine. Uh, And there are some great devices out there that are good for them at maybe a more reasonable price point. Um, that maybe aren't quite so feature heavy, but they might not need all of that. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, yeah, I know. Because I mean, especially for as price becomes more of a, di- I know that price is a big differentiator. Because when when my when my dad was looking for a new phone, it would I would like recommend like four hundred to six hundred dollar phones, and he would oh, be, still be like, I don't need to spend that much on a phone. Sure. And I I finally I think he ended up getting up uh, ended up getting a Moto X four like the the X fours and the Moto G sixes and all of these phones that. You can get them for $300 or less, but now we're actually starting to get to a point where affordable Android phones are still good specs. They're still more than enough for the average user, and especially in an age where uh, Android 1 and Android Go are coming on more and more devices, they're going to keep getting the security updates because we live in an age where we are constantly having to worry about what's what what security threat is coming, what loophole or patch needs to be pushed out, and... I think for a lot of people, it's they've equated getting a premium phone with getting a safe phone. But we are starting to see more affordable phones that are still getting the monthly updates that they need. Sure, sure. And I mean, that's a big that's a big focus. I know for us, we we, we have a testing and a validation team that works super hard on uh, working with like Google to get the and the OEMs, the manufacturers, of course, to get the security patches out. Um, I think it's interesting too. I wish more folks buying phones realized that that was actually what was really important rather than just a quote software update. Um, there's a lot of uh, fear of missing out, if you will, for folks that oh, yeah. I don't have, I don't have that Android version. And, and I, I see it all the time. People tweet me all the time. They're super, they're super pissed off about, they don't have the latest version of Android. And I say, Oh, well, what feature are you most specifically looking for <laughs> in that software update? And they can't tell me, they just, they just don't have the latest and it's driving them nuts. And, um, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. The real key is making sure that you've got the security updates just to keep you safe. Because a lot of these smaller Android updates, uh, there's not a lot of difference in them front facing to the customer. It's really mm-hmm. stuff on the back end, streamlining thin things. Um, of course, battery performance is always important. So that's one that, you know, we should all work on trying to get out to customers to make it better. So, but uh, yeah, that's, that's definitely yeah. a thing. Yeah, I know. It definitely is. Cause I know that people have railed about BlackBerry for like, oh, they, they're, 
they're so far far behind. They're not getting pie out fast enough. They haven't gotten, they didn't get Oreo out fast enough. And I'm like, but it, it's Blockberry. They got their monthly patches out before Google did some months. Yeah. Well, and, and if we talk about like Blackberry's a great one. So, uh, I have a key one, uh, and, uh, you know, I think the person buying that phone's buying that phone because it's a Blackberry and it's got a keyboard there. They yeah. half the time, they may not actually even know what version of Android they're on and they probably don't really care. And that's no, I mean, especially in the age of Google play services where so many of the features just, they come as an app update. They don't come as a, they don't come as a full platform update. Because we've uncoupled so much from the main operating system at this point. So long as your phone is on a relatively recent version of Android and is getting updates from the Google Play Store, the latest version of Android probably won't matter as much to most people. Yeah, I think that's I think that's the key. Is um, is your phone solid? Is it secure? And are you happy with its performance? Yeah. No, I've. Yeah, when the when the key one came out, and well, actually, when the Priv came out before it, when they the first BlackBerry Android phone with the keyboard on it came out, I had to I had to fight very hard to keep myself from buying that phone because <laughs> I because I mean what what brought me to Android when I first the phone I had before Android was a um, a Samsung Jack, which was a Windows phone, but I bought it because it had a physical keyboard. Yep. And when I was looking for my next one, it was like okay, so I could either get a iPhone that won't have a keyboard. I can get an Android that won't have a keyboard, or I can try and get an Android that does have a keyboard. And I, I, I still, I use my phone to write a lot, and I, I miss having the full size, the physical keyboard. There's just sure. nothing that quite compares, even if I have gotten ridiculously used to Swift Key at yep. this point. Yep, exactly. What about voice to text? Love it. I don't <laughs> use it as often as I should, especially because, uh, especially. Working in, I I didn't used to use it a lot because when I'm at work, it using voice to text just sounds like you're being a jerk because you're just dictating everything to the ether. It sounds like, but <laughs> I need to use it more when I'm I need to use it more when I'm home so that way I'm not like constantly. Because I mean, using your thumbs to type all this for hours a day sometimes that does strain your fingers, and using fo- voice to text not only helps you disengage from the phone a little bit more, but it also reminds you that oh hey voice um voice recognition and voice accuracy has gotten just like magnitudes better over the last three or four years with google assistant sure and the voice access that came out the voice to text is great but being able to like completely navigate your phone via voice with the new voice actions that they came out with a couple of weeks ago it's just a phenomenal ability. Yeah, I haven't um, I haven't played with it fully yet. I'm I'm pretty excited to do so. Back, uh, we were talking about some of our earlier phones. We built a phone called the MyTouch 3G Slide, which is one of our, which is I think one of my more proud moments in in designing and building a phone because we built that phone with a specific customer in mind. That was um, essentially I, I hate to pigeonhole it, but probably kind of a mom phone. Uh, it was the family historian's phone. It was the phone uh, for the person who needed to do some calendaring, who wanted to do lists, uh, and who wanted to um, take great pictures of the kids at the soccer match. And so when we built that phone, you remember that had a keyboard. Mm-hmm. Um, we spent a lot of time with HTC working on kind of best practice of the shape of the keys. And again, that key travel how wide was the keyboard? Was it ergonomically comfortable? Um, we have a gentleman by the name of Hugh who works for T-Mobile who built uh, and designed the Microsoft ergonomic keyboard. 
when you look when you look on that keyboard's box, his little signature. He actually sits on the other side of the wall from me at the office, and <laughs> uh, or I guess on the other side of, on the other side of our. They're not even cubes. We have kind of an open office concept at T-Mobile, and he just sits like a row over. And people always ask about needing help with that keyboard, and I'm like, well, the guy who built it's right there. But uh, <laughs> Hugh um, worked with us, and Hugh's team worked with us on making those those keys really comfortable for people to type on. Uh, we worked really hard on the camera for that device to make sure it was great. But our favorite, my favorite feature on that phone was, of course, Genius Button. And this was kind of the predecessor to what we see now with Siri and Google Assistant. And we had a kind of a beta program we were working on. We built that with Nuance, if you remember Nuance at all. Um, but you could put that phone into always listening mode in our beta. You could talk to it with your voice and navigate completely through the phone. It would read incoming text messages back to you. Um, it would ask you if you wanted to reply. You could dictate messages. And that's, that is kind of, I hope to see that back on phones again. Of course, T-Mobile has patents in that space for that specific device. But I'm I'm hoping that there are new ways that they've kind of found to build that kind of engagement. I would basically put my phone um, in a, in a stand or in a holder or just let it sit on the desk. And as things came in, when I was in that always listening mode, I could, um, I could completely hands-free work with my device and respond to people, dictate long emails uh, and navigate through the, uh, the various menus and options of the phone. It was really cool. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm, that's one of the three things that I missed from my Moto X because Moto X had the driving, uh, for Moto Assist, you had the driving mode, but you also had a home mode where it would, yeah, it would read out the apps to you and it would be in, it would be easier to like change tracks and, uh, change tracks for your music or open different kinds of apps. Uh, I miss the IR sensors, but, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no. And the other thing I miss is being able to s- give a custom trigger word for, uh, for Google now. Because you could, uh, through Moto right? Voice, you could set any trigger that you wanted. That was in 2014. And I was just like, I, it's 2018 and I, I still can't Where did say it go? computer engaged <laughs> to turn on assistant. Well, especially now in an age where like I have, there's Google assistant on my Chromebook. There's Google assistant on each one of my phones. I have a Google home, a tick home mini and an insignia voice smart speaker. And if I say, okay, Google, those words, then those all words, of yeah. them will wake up. Yeah. My Samsung just woke up. Everybody's yeah. listening. Yeah, but they all wake up and they all try to answer. And even though Google Assistant is very quick to like tamp down and turn all the others off, mm-hmm. I want to be able to trigger if my if my phone is sitting next to my Google Home, I want to be able to give a trigger and only wake up the phone instead of waking up the Google Home. Sure. Because right now Google Assistant has a very set hierarchy and it's if there's a Google Home that's closer, the Google Home is going to answer it instead of your phone. Even if it it's your phone that's playing the music or your phone that you're trying to call somebody on. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's, it's pretty interesting. You know, I think that's a, that's kind of a problem that just us techie folks have. So it's, uh, I have the same issue. I'm actually looking at the counter and there's an iPhone and there's the new LG and there's my note and there's a couple other phones I can't even talk about over there. Mm-hmm. And if I say the, if I say those keywords, this whole place is going to light up and start like sending things out to the internet right now. Yeah, no, I mean, especially in an age where Google Assistant and these smart assistants are on so many different devices. We can't target one specifically through voice commands, which I think I think is part of the reason that uh, so many people are still l- 
they still limit the amount of voice commands that they do because they want to be able to target the device. And if they use the vo- uh, the voice commands, it's just going to go to whichever. That's more of a shotgun spray. Yeah, are you- are you are you not a fan of having your refrigerator send out text messages for you? <laughs> I would love to if my refrigerator could actually send me messages and say, "Hey, the milk's expired before you start making mac and cheese." <laughs> yeah, no. I I actually really I really I have um I inherited my washing machine, but it's this really nice Speed Queen, but it doesn't ding when the washer is done. And I would love for Google Assistant oh, no. to be able to tell me, "Hey, the 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 washer stopped 15 minutes ago. You want to go put it in the dryer before it gets all mildewy? Yeah, I feel like there's a there might be a hack where you could uh, write a write a small app where it's just listening for the extra noise in the house, and when the noise goes away, yeah. oh, it's time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, yeah, no. It would definitely be nice to be able to bring more smart home tech that could integrate with what we already have instead of having to buy new multi-thousand dollar appliances for everything sure sure yeah it would be it would be cool if there was a modular modular setup so to speak yeah um where you could do that it'd be it would be nice it'd be more tinkery it wouldn't be as quite as elegant solution as these new models and these new phones which have everything just kind of built into it but it's it's nice to be able to bring something to older like why i loved google assistant when it came out uh, for phones, because it was it didn't matter if you were on Oreo or Lollipop, everybody got Google Assistant when it went, uh, when it pushed out from the Pixel. Sure, sure. There's there's probably interesting. You know, now that we're talking about, I can the old product hat goes back on. <laughs> I can think of ways to solve for the milk in the fridge and and kind of those basic ones um, pretty easily with with some basic sensors that that could be NFC done. NFC tags and all the like groceries. That. Yeah, it could be something as simple as weight. Just That's you know, true. is there a pad that you set your set your milk on and it knows? Um, I mean, a lot of times, you know, as we're talking about some of these things, sometimes the lowest tech solutions uh, were were and still are some of our favorites. You know, I'm talking about a 3.5 millimeter jack. Yeah, you're talking a lot about a keyboard. These are things that have been around for literally a hundred years, right? Yep. And so it's um, it's it's hard to let go of some of those things, but at the same time. Hopefully, technology is working uh, to make it better. You know, when a company s- takes away a, a headphone jack and says it's because of courage, I think they're full of crap. But, <laughs> but um, you know, that's one of those things where we try to, uh, you know, and we're not we're not necessarily T-Mobile. You know, and I'm talking more from a personal level, mm-hmm. but you know, everybody can see that T-Mobile's not actively building phones in the way it used to. I mean, we used to partner real closely with the HTCs of the world for my touch lines and uh, sharp for sidekick and things mm-hmm. like that. And who knows, maybe some of that stuff will, will come back that come back uh, in the future. But um, the manufacturers of these devices are a long ways away in, in most cases. Uh, and so there, I feel like sometimes they're maybe losing a little touch with what the customer wants. They're, they're all in the space race to have, really wicked cameras and really big screens and apparently notches the thing this year and maybe next year notches will be out, which would be great. Cause I don't, I don't love them. The smaller the notch, the better for me. I don't, I don't hate them, but I could, I could definitely do without a notch if, if there was a better option. I think that's why you talk about which skin uh, I like. I have a tendency to lean into uh, uh, like I said, vanilla Android devices. Um, but I also like Samsung cause Samsung hasn't hasn't delivered a notch yet and samsung hasn't delivered uh 
a phone yet without a 3.5 millimeter jack. Um, their skin is a little heavier uh, and it, it can, uh, it, I will be honest and say, I feel like maybe it can slow down the performance of the device at times, but it's got enough of the other things that I like in yeah, there. It's a fair trade off. Like for the, for the UI for Samsung, cause I've had, I, I like the lighter, more, the more pixel Google vision of Android too, but I like having a dark theme for my Android phone. When I came to Android, everything was dark. And then material design came along and I just was blinded <laughs> by the light. Um, and Samsung, yeah, the theme store <laughs> is kind of a pain to navigate and it's a little bit bulky, but at the same time, they gave me a dark system theme. Actually, they gave me like a thousand different dark nice, system yep. themes because anybody can build one. <laughs> so they're easy to find. They're easy to install. And well, now- we don't have that as much from any most we don't have that as much from many other manufacturers. Sure. Well, and the apps are helping us out too, right? YouTube's got a dark theme now. Twitter's got a dark theme. So slowly but surely, we're uh, we're going we're going away from yeah, the light. Hopefully, slowly. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I've I've pestered YouTube or I've pestered Google Play Music about getting a dark theme back for years, and I don't think I'm going to get that dark theme at, back before they go completely from Google Play Music to YouTube Music, which will be a very interesting migration in two years. Sure. Mm. I'm yeah. hoping it's two <laughs> years. I don't think it can happen before then. Well, thank you very much for talking with us about this. And I could just go on and on about these old phones. Cause I, I, well, actually I do have one final question for you. Uh, sure. Do you have a favorite Android phone of all time? Cause mine would be uh, this one, this uh, 2014 Moto X. Ooh, uh, boy, oh boy. Um, favorite Android phone of all time. Um, there have been so many cool ones all along the way. Uh, it's like asking you to pick your favorite kid. I know. I was like, have, I love all my children. They, I love all my children equally. <laughs> yeah. Uh, top three or top five, if you can think of them, any that are coming to mind. Yeah. Well, yeah, they're the modern era phones. Um, I can, you know, I was, I've been a product guy for a long time. I can say that things like I love, um, if for nothing else, I love the in-hand feel of the essential phone just because of the materials that it was made out of. Um, the notch and other things, you know, it's got vanilla Android. Um, I didn't love the notch, but it was, that was the first of its kind. But that phone felt really good in the hand. Um, the S8 Plus, so Samsung Galaxy S8 Plus, um, that was probably the first really big screen um, device S8 um, where the phone had all the curves in all the right spots to make it feel good in hand and have this massive display, really great camera on that phone. Um, and, you know, they, they just slowly get better. But that was the that was kind of a, a quantum leap, if you will, from other devices. Seven was good, but eight was eight was great. Um, yeah, no, I, I I was very sad when I had to get back my galaxy s8 at the beginning of the year <laughs> yeah right uh but then there's nines and there you know there'll be a 10 and i'm sure an 11 they'll just yeah. keep making them um you know and then things like i st- uh, like i brought it up before i think g2x was a really mm-hmm. cool probably with my top top three uh from lg and that was that was um that was something that was really different an hdmi port and a phone and you know no one probably cared about that but me but just the ability to basically make that a console in your pocket, like before, 
what was it? Ouya, I think was the little cube, the little one that it was the gaming cube that ran yeah. Android. It wasn't actually a phone. Yeah, we were we were a we were a console in your pocket before they were. <laughs> yeah, and for the HDMI, like it had the mini HDMI port. And I know that for so many phones, it was you had to get like these MTG or whatever adapters in order to display your phone out to a TV. And now we have Google Cast, and we can all mirror our phone sure. to our TV at any time wirelessly. So I, I get, yeah. I guess that's kind of like the the keyboards and the uh, and the three point five millimeter headphone jack, where it's we've had these wired solutions for so long, and we're still kind of get we've gotten a solution for that and i'm hoping we come up with a solution that's similar to that for other features yeah yeah i think uh no i think you're right i think the last one that comes to mind and just kind of the concept in general was um one we haven't talked about was the htc sensation which was a phone that i worked on right around the same time of the g2x um they were either one was right after the other i can't remember which one came first now but that phone was the first, probably the first phone that um, that I can remember where um, people looked at the industrial design of that phone. If you remember it, it was kind of this weird metal soft touch back plate. And it was kind of like a shell that came around the core of the phone. Mm-hmm. Um, that phone felt really good in hand. Uh, it was a, this really nice uh, metal and soft touch composition on the back. Um, and it had a really big screen in a really small footprint. Kind of, it was like, as I looking back, I kind of look at that phone's design now and think to myself, that was, that was yet another example where our buddies, uh, the old guys who used to work at HTC anyway, were way ahead of their time, uh, in terms of pushing the screen out to the corners of the phone, having, uh, this composite metal and, um, now it's just a screen on the front, but it was metal and a little bit of plastic design. That was the phone that most people that knew me personally, um, that weren't crazy tech fanatics. So like my friends, uh, outside of work and things like that were like, Ooh, that's a really cool phone. I could, I could use that one. So that was another one of my, my favorites for sure. And I think that was, that's a great example of where, as we talk about things we missed that kind of that kind of drove home all those uh, key points of the, of the first device without a keyboard. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that was, that was in that time frame where we were starting to move away from keyboards. Um, but we, st- we didn't really sacrifice much else with that phone. I think, I think it had an IR port. I can't remember. Can't remember. Um, I, I've got one sitting around here somewhere. I've got a white one that never saw the light of Aww. day. <laughs> I know there were, there was a big trend of after, after you built a phone, the manufacturer would always come back to you couple months later and be like, so now we've got a white one for you. Yeah, I know. The, and <laughs> they debuted the the red and the uh, gold Samsung Galaxy S9s that came out. And I was just like, these are the really cool colors I wanted six months ago. <laughs> well, Note 9, for instance, uh, T-Mobile just announced, well, launched today, uh, the black uh, Note today. So if you wanted a black one, black ones are available Ooh. starting today as, as we record what, this. Y'all didn't get the, the teddy bear brown one? No, no brown. No brown. Not this time. (laughs) (laughs) That was such a weird color to pick for this year's Note 9. Oh, oh my goodness. Yeah. Well, brown phones have kind of always come and gone, right? It's like like we talk about, we could talk about this forever. Uh, The other day I was working on a Sidekick retrospective and I found an old brown Sidekick LX. And I just, I looked at it and I thought, what were we thinking? (laughs) But that was in the days of Zune. So now maybe with uh, Guardians... Guardians of the Galaxy coming out. 
maybe we'll do a cross promotion with brown zunes and and brown phones again. Yeah. And they always yeah, had really ugly trim colors, like a bright lime green to go with that brown. It was something really terrible. The color combos were not not complimentary, not like a nice uh, warm camel leather color brown. They were always these uh, these other color browns. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I I definitely hear that. Yeah, no, and I I could talk phone colors all day because I I want more. Just like the that that blue HTC ten that they had, just like the really bright powdery cobalt blue. Mm-hmm. And we just yeah. don't get as many. I feel like phone. If you wanted a colored phone, I feel like most people have gone to the point where they're just like, "Oh, get a case." I was like, "Can you see the blue?" And so that's the new oh. V forty Thank You. Um, yeah, and it looks black by all, for all intents and purposes until you get it in the light, and it has this really cool blue shimmer to it. Um, yeah, and I was like, "Oh, you guys did good. You could have maybe turned that blue up a notch or two more." But yeah, that's a pretty one for sure. Yeah, no, it's like looking into the abyss until you take it out into the sun and then it just turns into like a good ocean blue. Yeah. Well, what about the the Note 9 is a nice blue. And the, you know, the thing I liked about the Note 9 and the blue combo that Samsung did with that is the lettering. I don't want to grab it and turn it around and show you because it's also recording audio over here. That one had uh, like the Samsung logos are typically this really bright silvery color. Mm-hmm. And they f- they faded those to a darker silver to have them kind of blend into the back of that really pretty blue on the back of that device. Yeah, no, I'm familiar with the the brand the big bold branding on the back. I've been looking at uh, Pixel Three cases all week for uh, the new phones that came out, and I was just like, oh, I can see that nice big solid G shining through all of these cases. <laughs> all the clear cases and translucent, they want the branding. So it is very interesting that Samsung was willing to turn it down in order to get a more subtle, more sophisticated look on the Note 9. Yeah, it's really pretty. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm hoping I get to play with the Note 9 a little bit more. And of course, the new Pixels, but one thing at sure. a time. But thank yep. you very much for talking to me about this. It's always fun to dig back and remember what it was that drew that all the phones that drew us towards Android in the first place and all the wonderful, wonderful devices that we've had over the years. Well, cool. Thanks so much for having me, you guys. 